Philosopher Moon's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Goddess, Part 2 It's an Arya thing Hey everyone, LML here. You might be wondering why this episode is called Weirwood Goddess 2, when you've never heard Weirwood Goddess 1. Don't worry, you didn't miss anything. The last episode was called Venus of the Woods, and I labeled it Weirwood Compendium 5, but I realized as I was writing this new episode that all of this Weirwood Goddess stuff was really kind of a side branch off of the Odin-related thread that we were on in the Weirwood Compendium. Also, I consulted our marketing department, and they said it was a good idea to spin it off into a proper series of its own. And, full disclosure, our marketing department is just another part of my brain. So, Venus of the Woods has been changed to Weirwood Goddess 1, instead of Weirwood Compendium 5. Today's episode will be Weirwood Goddess 2, and actually, it was going to be another one of those monstrous three-hour episodes, so I went ahead and split it up. That means you'll be getting another episode hot on the heels of this one, which will be Weirwood Goddess 3, and really, Weirwood Goddess 2 and 3 are meant to be read together, or listened to together. Also, you may have noticed the new theme music. It turns out that we have a world-renowned flamenco guitarist as a fan of the podcast, and that man is John Walsh, who hails from Ireland. He was kind enough to lend us one of his original compositions, Minera, for the podcast, which we're obviously thrilled with and grateful to have. You can find all of John's music, plus lots of instructional material and more, at johnwalshguitar.ie or on YouTube by looking up John Walsh Guitar. Important note, if you don't add the guitar, you'll get America's Most Wanted John Walsh, who can't teach you any flamenco licks, as far as I know. As usual, I offer my humble thanks to Mr. Martin Lewis of the Echoes of Ice and Fire blog for his amazing vocal performances, as well as to the Amethyst Koala, who did the female vocal performances today. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for cramming so much great symbolism into his books, and thanks most of all to our generous, loyal, and might I add good-looking Patreon supporters. Final bit of housekeeping, please look up Lucifer Means Lightbringer on YouTube and subscribe to our channel, because very soon, and possibly even before this podcast is released, we'll be releasing our first video episode of Mythical Astronomy, which I am calling LMLTV, and I promise that you won't want to miss that. In fact, we're going to need you to share it with all of your friends so they can get a taste of mythical astronomy that doesn't require sitting down for a two-hour podcast or equally long essay. Which, admittedly, is not for everybody. Now, let's get down to business. When we talk about the main characters in A Song of Ice and Fire playing into various archetypal roles and carrying around their own personal symbolism, there's really nothing quite so stunning and clear as Arya. Sure, it's easy to spot John as an Azora High Reborn type when he dreams of wielding a burning red sword, and it wasn't too hard to figure out that Daenerys transitions from a Moon Maiden to an Azora High Reborn figure when she walks into Drogo's pyre and wakes the dragons. And sure, George calls the antler-helmed Robert a horned god right out in the open in a Game of Thrones. But one of the most obvious symbolic associations in the whole series, one which is basically hidden in plain view, is the idea of Arya symbolizing a child of the forest. There are a lot of subtle clues about Arya symbolizing a child of the forest in the first four books, which we'll discuss throughout this episode, but Martin really cuts to the chase when Bran finally lays eyes on a child in a dance with dragons as the company fights off the whites to gain entrance to Bloodraven's cave. 
A cloud of ravens was pouring from the cave, and he saw a little girl with a torch in hand, darting this way and that. For a moment, Bran thought it was his sister, Arya, madly, for he knew his little sister was a thousand leagues away, or dead. And yet there she was, whirling, a scrawny thing, ragged, wild, her hair a tangle. Now, lest we think this an offhand remark, the comparison is carried on through the next section, which also doubles as our first detailed in-person description of those who sing the song of Earth, whom we can call Earth Singers for shorthand. The next he knew, he was lying on a bed of pine needles beneath a dark stone roof. The cave. I'm in the cave. His mouth still tasted of blood where he'd bitten his tongue, but a fire was burning to his right, the heat washing over his face, and he had never felt anything so good. Summer was there, sniffing round him, and Hodor, soaking wet. Mira cradled Jojen's head in her lap, and the Arya thing stood over them, clutching her torch. The snow, Bran said. It fell on me, buried me. Hid you. I pulled you out. Mira nodded at the girl. It was her who saved us, though. The torch... Fire kills them. Fire burns them. Fire is always hungry. That was not Arya's voice, nor any child's. It was a woman's voice, high and sweet, with a strange music in it, like none that he had ever heard, and a sadness that he thought might break his heart. Bran squinted to see her better. It was a girl, but smaller than Arya, her skin dappled like a doze beneath a cloak of leaves. Her eyes were queer, large and liquid, gold and green, slitted like a cat's eyes. No one has eyes like that. Her hair was a tangle of brown and red and gold, autumn colours, with vines and twigs and withered flowers woven through it. Who are you? Mira Reed was asking. No one has eyes like that. Get it? Arya is, of course, no one, famously, so that's one extra sneaky Arya reference to go along with the more straightforward ones that Bran draws. We are also presented with two lines of animal symbolism for those who sing the Song of Earth. They have dappled skin like a deer, think of the white spots on a fawn, and they have slitted golden eyes like a cat. As we'll soon see, these are both very important, and not by coincidence, Arya possesses both cat symbolism, such as when she goes by a cat of the canals or skin changes a cat at the House of Black and White, and a bit of slightly more cryptic deer-slash-dappled-skin symbolism. The other line of animal symbolism that the children of the forest have comes in the very next lines after the last quote, where Mira asked, Who are you? Upon seeing the singer, they would come to call Leaf. Bran knew. She's a child, a child of the forest. He shivered, as much from wonderment as cold. They had fallen into one of old Nan's tales. The first man named us children, the little woman said. The giants called us Wodak Nagran, the squirrel people, because we were small and quick and fond of trees. But we are no squirrels, no children. Our name in the true tongue means those who sing the song of earth. Before your old tongue was ever spoken, we had sung our songs ten thousand years. I probably don't even have to remind you that Arya is called Skinny Squirrel several times, three to be exact, and all by a person named Greenbeard, whom we'll talk more about in a moment. So that's where it starts. The child of the forest that Bran sees is compared to Arya, called the Arya Thing, and the three lines of animal symbolism possessed by the children, squirrels, deer, and cats, 
are also possessed by Arya. You'll also notice the bit about the children being fond of trees. Old Nan actually tells us that they used to live in secret tree towns, and we'll see Arya dip into this line of arboreal symbolism as well. She climbs trees like a squirrel, in other words, and when she does, the symbolism happens, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. We're going to cover all this and more today, but before we go further with the children of the forest symbolism, I need to say a word about Arya's other major character archetype, as we'll be tripping all over it as we go. That other symbolic archetype would be what we might call Death Goddess. Specifically, she is the Nissa Nissa Reborn character, the female version of Azor High Reborn, the Dark Solar King. These are really the same figure. In terms of mythical astronomy, Azor High Reborn and Nissa Nissa Reborn both represent the infamous Black Moon Meteors, the dark children of Sun and Moon, the Death Messengers, the Shadow Swords, that sort of thing. Arya has this symbolism in spades. The Ghost of Highheart calls Arya Darkheart and Bloodchild, while Jake and Hagar calls her Evil Child. For a time, she thinks of herself as the Ghost in Harrenhal, as she has Jaken carry out assassinations at her behest, with Arya herself slinking about her deadly mischief, whispering the suitably ghost-like mantra, Quiet as a Shadow. Arya also thinks of herself as the Night Wolf, because at night when she dreams, she frequently sees through the eyes of her wild direwolf, Nymeria, as she and her great pack ravage man and beast and bloody mummer alike in the Riverlands. Of course, a major part of her story so far involves Arya becoming a faceless man in training, where she endeavors to become no one. This is the culmination of the theme of identity erasure, which saturates Arya's character arc, even to the point of gender erasure. More obviously, the Faceless Men are the world's foremost assassins, and Arya is training to become one of them, an instrument of him of many faces, the god of death. It's quite the list of alter egos. Dark Heart, Blood Child, Evil Child, Ghost in Harrenhal, Night Wolf, Wolf Girl, Faceless Man. Even the more innocent-sounding, Water Dancer identity that she aspires to is just a fancy name for a certain type of sword fighter. It still comes down to sticking them with the pointy end, or as Sirio puts it, All men are made of water, do you know this? When you pierce them, the water leaks out and they die. So, it's just another killer identity for Arya, and thus you see what I mean about her being a death goddess figure many times over. More specifically, and I just want to re-emphasize this, she is a death goddess version of Azor High Reborn, at least in many scenes. This lines up with what we expect her plot arc to involve in the last two books, namely, a lot of killing. Freys and Boltons, preferably, but really, the sky is the limit. One of my favorite lines about Arya as a female Azor High Reborn figure comes in A Storm of Swords, after Gendry tells Arya of Thoros bravely climbing the walls at Pike during King Robert's attack there, wielding his signature flaming sword and setting Iron Men afire with every slash. Arya replies, I wish I had a flaming sword. Arya could think of lots of people she'd like to set on fire. A vengeful death goddess with a flaming sword. Now we're talking. Again we see the foreshadowing of Arya, leaving a trail of corpses behind her as she comes into her power. Now before Arya transforms into this death goddess, she shows us distinct Nissa Nissa symbolism, and that's the final thing that we need to set up in this intro. Just as Daenerys transforms from moon goddess to vengeful dragon, Arya does something similar in a couple different scenes in A Game of Thrones. 
By way of example, let's use the scene where Arya receives her last lesson from Sirio Forel, which takes place right before the Gold Cloaks and Kingsguard come to seize her as the Lannisters take control of the throne. Left, Sirio sang out. Lo, his sword was a blur, and the small hall echoed to the clack, clack, clack. Left, left, high, left, right, left, low, left. The wooden blade caught her high in the breast, a sudden stinging blow that hurt all the more because it came from the wrong side. A blow to the breast, just as Lightbringer was said to have plunged into Nissa Nissa's breast. And it's a blow whose hurt went beyond the physical pain because it felt like a betrayal. This calls to mind our theory that Azor High's murder of Nissa Nissa was the same event as the blood betrayal of the Amethyst Empress by the nefarious Bloodstone Emperor, and ties into the larger idea that the moonbreaking was a sin or a wrong blow. Ow! She cried out. She would have a fresh bruise there by the time she went to sleep, somewhere out at sea. A bruise is a lesson, she told herself. And each lesson makes us better. Sirio stepped back. You are dead now. Arya made a face. You cheated, she said hotly. You said left and you went right. Just so. And now you are a dead girl. But you lied. My words lied. My eyes and my arms shouted out the truth. But you were not seeing. I was so, Arya said. I watched you every second. Watching is not seeing, dead girl. The water dancer sees. Come, put down the sword. It is time for listening now. Sirio is symbolizing the deceptive, lying Azor High with his wrong blow to the breast of Arya, who must be the Moon Maiden. She's now a dead girl, and that's the idea. The moon is killed, and then reborn in the form of those killer black meteors, which can be seen as death messengers or undead shadow figures, in line with all of Arya's death goddess symbolism. This is Arya playing the role of Nissa Nissa Moon Maiden, struck in the breast and killed, and thereby transformed into a living dead thing. Arya also speaks hotly, which gives her a bit of fire symbolism in her moment of sword death. We mentioned Arya calls herself the ghost in Harrenhal, and it happens that the ghosts which are said to haunt Harrenhal are fiery in nature as well. Arya was remembering the stories old Nan used to tell of Harrenhal. Evil King Harren had walled himself up inside, so Aegon unleashed his dragons and turned the castle into a pyre. Nan said that fiery spirits still haunted the blackened towers. Sometimes men went to sleep safe in their beds and were found dead in the morning, all burnt up. Arya is the ghost in Harrenhal, so perhaps we're meant to think of her death goddess form as being of a fiery nature, and that fits very well with all the fiery tree spirit slash burning tree woman slash shy maiden symbolism that we saw in the Nissa Nissa figures in the last episode. We'll go back to Harrenhal for some of Arya's scenes there and dive into this ghost symbolism a bit deeper, or a lot deeper. So, that's Arya in a nutshell. A skinny squirrel in a nutshell. <laughs> the thing we have to consider is the mixture of Child of the Forest symbolism, Nissa Nissa symbolism, and all this death goddess stuff. What's the meaning of this? We'll consider that question throughout this episode as we gather more information, but right away we can put our finger on the general idea being suggested here. Nissa Nissa may have been a child of the forest before she was sacrificed, or at least a human-slash-child-of-the-forest hybrid, 
and she may have had some sort of life after death as a vengeful tree spirit, or perhaps even a zombie or something like that. I've teased these ideas before, particularly the idea of Nissa Nissa as a child of the forest or elf woman, and today we're going to present all the evidence for it. If the unofficial subtitle of the last episode was Nissa Nissa was a weirwood tree, you could call this one Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest. Although I want to add the caveat that she could also have been a female of the green man race, if there is such a thing. The topic today is more Nissa Nissa than Arya, essentially, though it will have a ton of Arya in it. The title of this one gives it away. It's an Arya thing. As in, look at that elf woman. It's an Arya thing. Ultimately, the point is Nissa Nissa and the children of the forest. As it happens, there are many, many clues about Nissa Nissa being some sort of elf woman to be found with pretty much all of our Nissa Nissa moon maidens, including all the ones we examined in the Venus of the Woods episode, plus a few more. Arya has some of the best clues in this regard, so I really couldn't do a Nissa Nissa was an elf episode without diving into her symbolism pretty heavily. In fact, I've actually been saving Arya for this episode, knowing that it was coming at some point. So here's how this is going to go. Before we focus on Arya primarily, I want to establish the link between Nissa Nissa and the children of the forest, which is a very strong connection in its own right, irrespective of Arya's symbolism. We're going to do this by picking up right where we left off in Venus of the Woods, talking about some of those fiery moon women who are tied to weirwood trees. Weirwood goddesses, I called them, or burning ash tree women, since the ash tree symbolism seems to be one of the most identifiable parts of this archetype. That archetype also includes the shy maiden character, the ash tree maiden who combines fire, tree, and moon symbolism, and who always wakes from a ground zero lightbringer bonfire. Among the weirwood goddesses we examined were Lady Catelyn Stark and her Lady Stoneheart form, Masha Heddle, Brienne of Tarth, Melisandre of Ashai, Asha Greyjoy, the wildling spearwives Asha, Ygritte, Rowan, and Thistle, and even the petrified weirwood bones of the sea dragon Naga. We saw this weirwood goddess figure in many scenes, always sacrificing stag people to themselves or to actual heart trees, and frequently manifesting the weirwood stigmata, the acquisition of bloody hands, a bloody mouth or red smile, as they say, tears or bloody tears, and so on. Now we are going to examine a whole new line of symbolism, several new lines of symbolism actually, which suggests that this Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess archetype has something to do with elves, by which I mean children of the forest and green men, both of whom we already know are tied to weirwood trees. And if any of that recap was foggy for you, it might be a good idea to go back and reread or re-listen to Venus of the Woods, as we're going to pretty much grab the baton and run here. Now, if you're skipping around and reading or listening out of order because you like Arya and saw Arya in the title, may R'hllor have mercy on your soul, because some of this will make very little sense. Although I'm quite grateful to have you here. Thanks for coming. You will definitely want to read at least Venus of the Woods before this one. Take my word for it. It'll make a lot more sense that way. So now that we've introduced Arya's major symbolism, we'll be able to weave her freely into our study of Nissa Nissa reborn weirwood moon goddesses. We'll start with a few of the women we discussed last time, and then we'll get into some of Arya's best scenes and see what's going on there. Throughout all of it, we'll see a constant juxtaposition of children of the forest symbolism and death goddess symbolism, and getting to the bottom of that will be the mission of this episode and the next. I should also mention that there are a couple of other characters and places making their mythical astronomy debut in this episode besides Arya, the Ghost of High Heart, 
Jenny of Oldstones, Mance Raider, Jake and Hagar, Greenbeard, Old Nan, and Leanna Stark, a.k.a. the Knight of the Laughing Tree, although we've mentioned Leanna in passing a tiny bit before. In the next episode, we'll get our first real dose of Cersei Lannister, the House of Black and White, and even the Red Widow of the Duncan Egg novella, The Sworn Sword. So you've got those to look forward to. Plus, there'll be another nice helping of Arya material in that one. The Weirwood Dryad This section is brought to you by our new Guardian of the Galaxy patron, who earns our eternal gratitude for stepping up from the Zodiac patron level. Sir Cletus Ironwood Reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, Wrestler of Bulls and Guardian of the Stallion and the Horned Lord. Last time, I told you that Nissa Nissa was some kind of tree woman. And now I'm saying she's an elf woman. Apparently because I like to jerk you around and tell you lies. Ha! I jest. The idea of Nissa Nissa as a tree woman and Nissa Nissa as an elf woman aren't really in conflict at all. The thing to think of is a dryad, a female spirit of a tree, who is essentially part elf and part tree. At the beginning of Venus of the Woods, I mentioned the ash tree nymphs of Greek mythology called the Meliae are basically a type of dryad, and they're going to be right at the center of the revelry today. I mentioned the Meliae when we talked about the spearwives, Asha, Rowan, Ygritte, and poor Thistle, because those Meliae like to dole out spears of ash wood to their children. We've seen that weirwoods function as symbolic ash trees due to their connection to the great ash tree Yggdrasil, so spearwives who worship weirwoods are somewhat similar to Meliae. And George even named one of the spearwives Rowan. And of course, rowan trees are also called mountain ash, making this a clue about spearwives as ash tree maidens. Asha, another spearwife with ash tree symbolism, was a further clue in this direction. We also talked about how the shy maiden or a shy maiden archetype is heavily based on the Meliae ash tree maidens. If you recall, the shy maiden is a burning moon maiden figure tied to the weirwoods, the symbolic burning ash trees. The Shy Maiden is a fire dryad for a burning tree, if you will. Melisandre of Ashai is the captain of the Shy Maiden Club, and I mentioned that Melii sounds a bit like Mel from Ashai, or like Mel's true name, Melanie. In other words, we've already seen that the Melii have a big influence on the greater Nissanissa archetype, particularly with Melisandre and the Spearwives and all that Shy Maiden stuff. Now I'm suggesting that the Meliae influence on the Nissanissa archetype may extend to Nissanissa being a child of the forest. After all, there's not a ton of difference between a tree nymph or a dryad or an elf and a child of the forest. They're all pretty much related ideas, different ways of getting at the basic idea of an elf or nature spirit which is tied to a magical or sentient tree. We get our first direct look at some of those children of the forest in A Dance with Dragons, the ones that Bran and company meet at Bloodraven's Cave. There are six of them, and Bran and Jojen and Mira think of nicknames for each. There's Leaf, the one Bran calls the Arya thing at first, with the name presumably taken from the cloak of leaves that the children wear. Then we have Black Knife, who's almost certainly named for the black dragonglass knives that the children carry. Snowy Locks, who obviously has white hair. Coles who's probably named for the children's bright, liquid gold eyes. Scales, which, quite frankly, is a name that simply raises more questions than it answers. Do the children have partially scaled flesh like a reptile? Egads. 
And shout out to James of Thrones and his mom's cool The Children of the Forest Are Lizard People theory, which you should totally look up and watch. And I've got a link to that on the matching essay version of this podcast at LuciferMeansLightbringer.com. And finally, there's one more child of the forest, and that would be the one they name Ash, for reasons unknown. That's right, one of the singers is named Ash. This is significant because we just spent a whole episode talking about how the Nissa Nissa Weirwood Moon Maidens have all this ash tree symbolism, and here we find a child of the forest named Ash. The child of the forest named Ash is pretty much a dead ringer for a Melii reference. It's almost overkill, really, since the Weirwoods are already closely tied to the ash tree Yggdrasil, and the children are elves tied to the magic tree, just like the Melii are. So naming the child Ash kind of just hits us over the head with, these are ash tree elves. Just as the Melii tree elves make spears from their ash trees and give them to their children, who are the bronze race of man, the children of the forest make weapons out of weirwood, bows and arrows at the least, and it's not hard to imagine them making a weirwood spear. The Magnar of Thin has a weirwood spear, by the way, and I can't help but notice that he's heavily associated with bronze as well like the bronze race born of the Melii. Bottom line, the children of the forest, who are tied to weirwoods, have a lot in common with the Melii, who are tied to ash trees. When we see that George has named one of these Melii-like singers Ash, we can feel pretty confident that George is indeed drawing from this Melii mythology and pointing us towards it. Since so many of the Nissa, Nissa figures in the story seem to have ash tree woman symbolism rooted in Melii folklore, we can only look at the bigger picture and wonder if the message is, Nissa Nissa was an elf. This is not a new idea if you've been reading or listening to mythical astronomy. You may recall from our very first episode that in Scandinavian countries, the word Nissa, or Nis, and that's N-I-S-S-E, is synonymous with a certain kind of elf or gnome-like creature. It's translated either as helpful elf or mischievous elf. There's a fairly common tradition of the Nissa man, also called a Tomti, who's a little garden gnome-like being associated with farms. Sometimes they were thought to be associated with the burial mound of the original farmer who cleared the land, or perhaps the ancestors of the farmers living there. The belief is that if you left a bit of food out for him, especially around Yule, he would act as a benevolent protector of the farmstead and even help with the work when you weren't looking. However, the Nyssa can also be easily offended, and then they might cause trouble or kill livestock. That's when this elf turned from helpful to mischievous. Best of all, some legends have the Nyssa with four fingers and glow-in-the-dark cat eyes. I kid you not. So while the gender is wrong, the rest fits, and the tradition is definitely something Martin would be aware of with his deep knowledge of Norse myth. All you have to do is flip the gender, and we have a miniature elf woman named Nyssa who has four fingers and cat eyes and who is potentially a vengeful nature spirit. So that's all a pretty good start for pegging Nissa Nissa as a child of the forest or something similar. But of course, you know, if George wants us to think of her that way, he will leave an abundance of clues for us to find and for me to podcast about. As I mentioned, all of the Weirwood Maidens we looked at, and many that we haven't, have child of the forest or elf woman symbolism of one sort or another. As you will see, vengeful nature spirit is going to be kind of a theme that pops up again and again with many of these characters, Arya above all. In this section, we'll discuss Melisandre of Ashai, the six spearwives that come to Winterfell with Mance Raider in A Dance with Dragons, and Mance Raider himself, as they all have a lot of interlocking scenes and symbolism. 
After that, it's on to the ghost of High Heart, and then a whole bunch of Arya, with the rest of the weirwood goddesses from Venus of the Woods showing us their Child of the Forest symbolism in the next episode, which will be called Catwoman. In Venus of the Woods, we saw that Melisandre is one of the very best burning tree weirwood goddesses, with her blood and fire red hair and eyes and clothes, her heart-shaped face, and her love of imprisoning stag men in the flames, and all the rest. She is, of course, also one of the most clear Nissa Nissa moon maidens, possibly the most symbolically vivid after Daenerys. Mel doesn't seem much like a child of the forest at first, however, though she might compare better to the tall, long-lived sort of elves that we find in Lord of the Rings, as Mel seems to be at least a couple of centuries old and appears to be ageless, with an alien and sometimes terrible kind of beauty. More crucially, Melisandre is tied to the Meliai through her name and all her shy maiden, a shy maiden symbolism. I should also mention that Melisandre happens to have a habit of singing during magic ceremonies, and her voice is flavored with the music of the Jade Sea. Both of these things make us think of those who sing the song of earth, they who were said to use song and dance, along with ritual sacrifice, to call down the hammer of the waters, and whose voices are full of music to Bran's ears. The flavored with the music of the Jade Sea line even implies music that is green, like jade, suggestive of earth singers who are also green seers. And do you remember that weird scene in A Dance with Dragons where Mel successfully calls Ghost away from John? It says that Melisandre made the word a song, which gives us the idea of Melisandre using singing magic to communicate or influence a direwolf, like an earth singer who is a skin changer. Keep in mind that I'm not meaning to address the literal possibility that Melisandre may be tapping into skin changer or green seer abilities inherited from her hypothesized father, Bloodraven, though this scene is surely suggestive of that very thing, and I do consider it a possibility. My point here, rather, is the magical song symbolism of Melisandre and how that contributes to the picture that we're constructing of the Nissa Nissa archetype. Nissa Nissa may have been one who sang magical songs and who communicated with magical beasts, at least when she wasn't giving birth to Azor Ahai's shadow children. Now, before I caught on to any of that, I spotted a weird detail in one of Melisandre's scenes that, together with the Nissa means helpful elf thing that I stumbled onto right at the beginning, has always had me wondering whether Nissa Nissa might be some kind of elf. So let's return for a moment to the cave beneath Storm's End, where Melisandre is birthing the shadow baby and crying out in agony and ecstasy, a familiar scene which seems to be more and more significant every time we revisit it. There's a curious line. Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. This entire shadow baby birthing scene is one of the strongest examples of Mel expressing Nissa Nissa symbolism, and right in the middle of it, we find this dappled skin language. Anytime I see the word dappled, I think of that description of the children of the forest as having dappled skin. We will see this dappled descriptor hung on many of our weirwood moon maidens, so I'm inclined to interpret them as intentional references to the children of the forest. Again, when I first noticed Melisandre being dappled here, I pretty much just followed it away for consideration. But now that we've learned that Melisandre represents a burning heart tree with a heart face and has all that Melii symbolism, her dappled skin seems to be like, I don't know, just merely another log on the fire at this point. Notice, too, that Melisandre's eyes are like hot coals here. And as we just saw, one of those children of the forest is nicknamed Coals, 
presumably for those glowing golden eyes that they have. So now Mel is a burning weirwood maiden with dappled skin and eyes like coals in an enchanted cave beneath a great weirwood tree in a magical castle built by a horned lord. Playing the role of Nissa Nissa and bringing forth the children of a lightbringer-wielding stagman, children which are shadows with burning hearts that parallel resurrected Night's Watch brothers. And scene. It's fun to say it all at once like that, but I do want to remind you of the correlation between the Night's Watch brothers and the shadow babies that we talked about last time, because it's going to be of central importance today. Just as my green zombie theory calls for the original Night's Watch, who I believe to be the last hero's 12 dead companions, to be resurrected in front of a heart tree in the original version of the Night's Watch vow ceremony, Mel is acting as the burning weirwood tree when she gives the black shadows their unlife. We'll come back to this idea many times today, as resurrecting fiery shadows seems to be one of the central roles of the weirwood goddess Nissa Nissa archetype. This is actually a twisted version of the moon goddess resurrecting the horned god, as we'll discuss later. Melisandre has one spectacular weirwood burning scene which I've been saving, and which has a lot to say about our quest today. That would be the burning of the fake horn of Jorman and fake Mance Raider, who was the Lord of Bones glamoured to look like Mance Raider, if you recall, followed by the wildlings being made to burn pieces of weirwood as they pass through the wall and into the safe refuge of the Seven Kingdoms. To set that up, though, we really need to talk about Mance Raider and the Wildling Spearwives first. Namely, the six Spearwives who come to Winterfell with Mance Raider disguised as washerwomen in a dance with dragons. Think about those Melii ash tree dryads and their spears of ash wood, and how the Wildling Spearwives play into the symbolism by praying to the Weirwoods, which are like magical ash trees. Now check out the names of the six Spearwives. Holly, Rowan, Myrtle, Willow Witch-Eye, Squirrel, and Frenya. The first four are named after trees, Holly, Rowan, Myrtle, and Willow Witch-Eye, directly implying them as tree women or dryads. Another is called Squirrel, to remind us of the children of the forest, and as it happens, Squirrel is the one who takes fake Arya's place, that's Jane Poole, during the rescue, because Squirrel is the only one who can escape out the window by climbing down the outside of the tower. That's why she's named Squirrel, because she's good at climbing. That is simply a very clever way of reinforcing the idea that, even when it's just fake Arya or someone pretending to be fake Arya, Arya is still a squirrel person. There's a strong whiff of Odin lurking about these spearwives, I have to say. The name Frenya is one letter away from the Norse fertility goddess Freya, who is the wife of Odin. Frenya is notable for her enormous breasts, George's wording, so it seems that the Freya reference is probably intentional. That's also why Walder Frey and the entire House Frey is so damnably fertile, by the way. It's Freya mythology. In any case, the one named Holly reminds us of the Holly King Winter King archetype, of which Odin is one variation, and Willow Witch Eye sounds like a female Odin type, a one eyed seeress. Willow was also the name of the girl running the inn at the crossroads in A Feast for Crows. That would be the one called the Gallows Inn, which seemed to symbolize a weirwood tree and which also happens to be an inn full of children. Most notable in this group of spearwives, of course, is the red-headed spearwife known as Rowan, who's the one we talked about a bit last time. Recall that she threatens to spill Theon's blood before the heart tree, with Theon graphically visualizing his blood feeding the weirwood, just like the sacrificed captive in Bran's very last weirwood vision in A Dance with the Dragons. 
because rowan trees are, say it with me, also called mountain ash trees, rowan is an especially vivid ash tree spear maiden. That's pretty much straight melee material right there, on top of the general spearwife thing. I'd say that the red-headed spearwife named Rowan is a great counterpart to the child of the forest named Ash, in fact. They both lead us to the idea of an ash tree dryad, or in a song of ice and fire terms, the weirwood dryad. Consider, there are six spearwives with mance, and six named children of the forest in the cave with Bloodraven. They both have a woman named after an ash tree, Rowan and Ash. One group has a woman named Squirrel, while the other group are squirrel people. One group is largely named after trees. The other lives in and under trees. One group has a woman with a witch eye. The other serves a green seer with a witch eye. So what I'm saying is, it seems like the spearwives are being used to symbolize children of the forest, just in case I wasn't making that clear. Now here's why that's important. You will recall that in the notorious pink letter, Ramsey, or whoever wrote that friggin' thing, claims that Ramsey holds Mance Raider prisoner in a cold cage and has made him a grisly sort of cloak from the skins of the six spearwives, whom he claims to have killed. I certainly hope this isn't true, but the symbolism certainly demands our attention. Anytime we're talking about skinning someone, we might be dealing with skin-changer symbolism, and if those spearwives are playing the role of children of the forest, well, this seems like a significant scene. We can't really understand what it's saying, however, without having a basic grasp on what symbolic role Mance is playing. And that means it's time for a section break. Burning Mance with Song and Dance. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of our newest priest of starry wisdom, Sir Stoyles of Long Branch, seeker of pale blood and knight of the sacred order of the Black Hand as well as faithful starry wisdom acolyte Sir Therion Black, the Justiciar, bearer of the Valerian steel sword, Altar Rage. I have to admit to having neglected Mance Raider shamefully thus far. Apologies, apologies. Mance and his King Beyond the Wall archetype aren't hard to peg, though. He's a stag man Azor High of a certain flavor, very similar to the King of Winter. For starters, Mance has that black cloak slashed with red silk from a shy, which is suggestive of, well, basically everything related to Azor High and dragons, especially since the red came from Ashai. Then there's his tent, whose peaked roof was crowned with a huge set of antlers from one of the giant elks that had once roamed freely throughout the Seven Kingdoms in the times of the First Men. The story of how he got the red in his black cloak actually reinforces Mance as a stagman, as we learn in A Clash of Kings. So that seems like a good one to quote. The black wool cloak of a sworn brother of the night's watch, said the king beyond the wall. One day on arranging, we brought down a fine big elk. We were skinning it when the smell of blood drew a shadow cat out of its lair. I drove it off, but not before it shredded my cloak to ribbons. Do you see? Here, here and here. He chuckled. It shredded my arm and back as well, and I bled worse than the elk. Bleeding Mance is like the bleeding elk, in other words. That's the same message communicated by him skinning an elk. It implies him skin-changing a stag, and thus a stag-man skin-changer or greenseer. Remember also that a stag's antlers and tree branches are symbolically interchangeable, and skinning or skin-changing a stag can simply be a metaphor for a greenseer skin-changing a weirwood. 
As we've been shown again and again, stagman types have to bleed in order to enter the bleeding trees, and that's why Mance's bleeding is compared to that of the elk. The rest of the story goes that a woodswoman stitched up his wounds and also stitched up his cloak with that red silk from a shy. Then when Mance returned to Eastwatch, Dennis Malister demanded that he get rid of the black and red cloak, saying it was fit for burning, which is kind of a giveaway. Mance is a burning stag man, and that's going to be reinforced in the scene with Melisandre burning rattleshirt glamoured as Mance. Mance also has many symbolic parallels to Rhaegar, which has led a few people to think that Mance is actually Rhaegar. I'm pretty sure Rhaegar is dead, guys, but the symbolism he shares with Mance does exist, and I believe it exists in order to cast Mance in the Azor Ahai archetype, of which Rhaegar is a prime example. Or you might say that the similarities exist because they both are playing a similar archetype. So as for those connections, well, one is a father figure to John, one is John's father. One sings of the Dornishman's wife, one has a Dornish woman for a wife. Both play the harp, both lose to Baratheons in battle, the red and black thing, and the Bale the Bard connection, because Mance plays the Bale role when he sneaks into Winterfell to abduct fake Arya, and Rhaegar does something similar in his supposed abduction of Lyanna. But guys, Rhaegar's dead. That's the point of Rhaegar as a character, in my view. He's the typical prince-charming fantasy hero, but George killed him 20 years before the story began. It's George's sense of humor. Ha ha. So, Mance and the King Beyond the Wall archetype is a burning stag man, similar to the King of Winter and Azor Ahai. Therefore, the implication of Mance in a cage is of an Azor Ahai type person as a skin changer. More specifically, Azor Ahai reborn, using the sacrifice of children of the forest to gain the ability to skin change, or more probably to gain access to the Weirwood Net. This might well have something to do with the blood magic killing of Nissa Nissa, if Nissa Nissa was indeed some kind of child of the forest or child-human hybrid. Now notice that because there are six spearwives, Mance would be wearing six skins, reminding us of Vermeer's six skins and all of his superb naughty green seer symbolism. Now just as Vermeer attempts to enter the weirwood maiden Thistle and kills her in the process, Mance symbolically becomes a skin changer here through the sacrifice of the spearwives who stand in for children of the forest, while he's in a cage. The cage is the big clue here. It implies the idea of Azor Ahai, the naughty green seer, stuck in the Weirwood prison. Think of Stannis's black stag appearing imprisoned in the flames, and the etymology around fish garths and fishing weirs that implies the Weirwoods as garth trees or as traps for garth people, a.k.a. horned lords. That brings us to the burning of fake Mance Raider, which will corroborate my assertion that George is showing a skin-changer Mance in a cage as a symbol of Azor High in the Weirwood Net prison, and showing us that Nissa Nissa's death plays a key part in getting him in there. This is actually a burning King of Winter scene, which nearly made it into the Green Zombie series. In fact, at the end of the Green Zombie series, I posed a trivia question, saying that there was one other really strong King of Winter character that I hadn't mentioned. The answer, as a few of you guessed, was Mance Raider. As far as I can tell, the King Beyond the Wall archetype and the King of Winter archetype are either the same or like a twin pair, like brother archetypes or something, as we're about to see fake Mance do all the King of Winter stuff. You may recall that the tale of Bale the Bard, a King Beyond the Wall, whom Mance is kind of like an echo of, 
has Bale putting his King Beyond the Wall genetics into the line of House Stark in the Kings of Winter. So it makes sense that these archetypes are related to one another. The scene begins with Rattleshirt as Mance being let out with a noose about his neck and then put into a cage, with this cage being a more explicit symbol of the weirwood net as a prison, as it's made of the trees of the haunted forest, from saplings and supple branches, pine boughs sticky with sap, and the bone-white fingers of the weirwood. In other words, for this death transformation scene, we have an Odin hung on Yggdrasil symbol in the noose, combined with the weirwood, which draws so much from Odin and Yggdrasil. Fake Mance's noose isn't tied to a tree, but rather a horse. Specifically, it's tied to the saddle horn of Sir Godry Faring's horse. Of course, Yggdrasil can be a horse, ridden by shamanic horned lords such as Odin, by way of being hung upon it. So the noose tied to the horse's saddle horn works to imply Mance, or fake Mance, as a horned lord hung from a tree. Not wanting to die, Rattleshirt disguised as Mance resists, and has to be dragged into the cage by a dozen men, bloodied. Next, Melisandre raises her pale white hands, which coming only one paragraph away from the line about the bone-white fingers of the weirwood, serves to highlight Melisandre's status as a symbol of the burning weirwood goddess. She's a parallel to the burning weirwood cage. She swallows stag men like Stannis, and the burning weirwood cage swallows fake Mance Raider, a horned lord figure. We saw that same parallel between Mel and her bonfire when she burned the wooden statues of the Seven on Dragonstone, which, as burning wooden gods, stand in for the weirwood trees that carry the fire of the gods. Mel then sets fire to the supposedly fake Horn of Jormund, which looks almost exactly like Euron's Valerian Dragonbinder horn, calling it the Horn of Darkness as it's set afire and tossed into the pit beneath fake Mance, reinforcing Mance's fiery horned lord symbolism. We will eventually do an episode on the magic horns and try to figure out what role they play, but for now we can observe that the fiery hellhorn symbol seems to pop up near the beginning of the Lightbringer forging sequence. And I should also add that Odin is rarely seen without his drinking horn, from which he imbibes the mead of poetry. Then we see a bit of Odin-esque shamanic ecstasy take hold. Inside his cage, Mance Raider clawed at the noose around his neck, with bound hands and screamed incoherently of treachery and witchery, denying his kingship, denying his people, denying his name, denying all that he had ever been. He shrieked for mercy and cursed the Red Woman and began to laugh hysterically. The shamanic ecstasy symbolism continues two paragraphs later. The horn crashed amongst the logs and leaves and kindling. Within three heartbeats, the whole pit was aflame. Clutching the bars of his cage with bound hands, Mance sobbed and begged. When the fire reached him, he did a little dance. His screams became one long wordless shriek of fear and pain. Within his cage, he fluttered like a burning leaf, a moth caught in a candle flame. The burning leaf symbol is familiar to us, as the red leaves of the weirwood canopy can also appear as leaves which are ablaze with red fire. So, this singing horned lord is laughing and crying and dancing as he burns inside a partially weirwood cage, becoming one with the symbolic burning tree by turning into a burning leaf. He's also becoming one of our trademark Ground Zero fiery dancers, such as we saw at the alchemical wedding and the burning of the wooden gods on Dragonstone, 
and he's showing us that those fiery dancers come from burning the stag man, the king of winter figure, that they are the king of winter figure transformed by fire. After John and Garth Greyfeather and two other Night's Watch brothers put fake Mance out of his suffering with arrows, it says, A woman's sobs echoed off the wall as the wildling king slid bonelessly to the floor of his cage, wreathed in fire. Wreathed in fire is trademark burning king of winter symbolism, as we saw in the Green Zombie episodes. Also, I think the boneless description might be kind of a joke. This is literally Rattleshirt, the Lord of Bones, without his bone shirt and armor. He's boneless. So, what happens after Melisandre burns a horned lord in a weird cage? The same thing that happens at Dragonstone after she burns the Seven. Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. Right, of course. That's the whole point. Lightbringer, the burning sword, and the symbolically burning weirwood tree are the two forms of the fire of the gods. Lightbringer's forging goes hand in hand with setting the tree ablaze. This is the fiery death transformation of Azor High, an event which is also Azor High going into the weirwood net. That's what Mance in a Cage is all about. The weirwood net as a fiery prison for naughty green seers like Azor High just the same as with Stannis' black stag imprisoned in the burning red heart. We've actually seen Azor High in a fiery cage like this one before, and it too occurred amidst heavy weirwood symbolism mixed with Lightbringer symbolism. It's a line from Beric's fight with the Hound in A Storm of Swords. The flame swirled about his sword and left red and yellow ghosts to mark its passage. Each move Lord Beric made fanned them and made them burn the brighter until it seemed as though the Lightning Lord stood within a cage of fire. A cage made of fire and ghosts for Azor High, and down in a weirwood cave. I'm sure you can see the similarity to fake Mance burning in the weirwood cage while Stannis draws Lightbringer. Now facilitating Mance's symbolic entrance into the weirwood net, and this is the part central to today's topic, is a burning weirwood woman, Melisandre. In fact, Right before Stannis draws Lightbringer, we get the line, Tall yellow flames danced from her fingertips like claws. That has to remind us of the children of the forest who have clawed fingers, and more generally to the idea of clawed animals like dragons and cats. Mance, too, clawed at the weirwood cage, and this is that pattern of weirwood sacrifice and weirwood goddess taking on the same symbolism in the moment of transformation, as the horned lord figure enters the weirwood. The claw symbolism aside, the main thing here is the gatekeeper role that Nissa Nissa plays. We've seen that gatekeeper role played by many weirwood goddesses, by Lady Catelyn cutting the throat of Jingle Bell as she dies of the weirwood stigmata, by Lady Stoneheart as the hangwoman who facilitates hanging death transformations for as many people as possible, by Masha Heddle when Tywin hangs and weirwood stigmatas her to gain entrance to her gallows inn, and by Melisandre in the poison wine scene with Cresson. We've also seen the gatekeeper of the weirwood role played by Asha the Wildling when she gives the gift of mercy to Lewin beneath Winterfell's heart tree, by Rowan the Wildling when she threatens to sacrifice Theon as the Grey King to the heart tree, and by Thistle the Wildling when she is most unfortunately used by Vermeer as an entrance to the weirwood net. Even Beric in his fiery cage the only reason he's fighting the Hound is because Arya was the one to make a specific accusation of murder against the Hound. He was, in a sense, fighting as her champion. 
At Winterfell, it was the death of the Spearwives, who symbolized children of the forest, that symbolically transferred the skin-changer Greenseer gifts to Mance as he went into the cage. Again we see Nissa Nissa dying and facilitating the Horned Lord's entrance to the Weirwoodnet. At the scene at the Wall, Mel plays the gatekeeper for fake Mance's fiery entrance to the Weirwoodnet by bestowing upon him the fire of the Red God while he's in the Weirwood cage, symbolically triggering his death transformation. The idea of Mance being reborn, by the way, is carried out by the simple fact that real Mance didn't die, and appears to John a few chapters later disguised as Rattleshirt. Now, no weirwood women or children are sacrificed at fake Mance's death, but we do get something like that when Mance is captured by Stannis, which leads directly to his burning in the weirwood cage. Now, during the battle at the Wall, where Stannis defeats the wildlings and takes Mance Raider prisoner, Mance Raider's wife, Dalla, tragically dies giving birth to Mance's son in trademark Nissa Nissa fashion. The fact that he's born during battle is the reason why the child is eventually named Aemon Battleborn, with Aemon being a suitably dragon-inspired name for a last hero, child of Azor High and Nissa Nissa figure like Mance and Dalla's son. Here's the point, though. Nissa Nissa dying in childbirth is really the same symbolic pattern as Nissa Nissa dying to facilitate Azor High's rebirth into the Weirwood Net. Resurrected Azor High and the Child of Azor High are both Azor High reborn, as you're probably tired of hearing me say. Returning to the scene at the Wall after Mance's burning, we find the wildlings being lectured about the one true god and the night being dark and all the rest, upon which time Stannis and Melisandre and John let them through. But the price of entry is setting fire to more weirwood. Burning fake Mance in a weirwood cage was also part of the price of admission, and that's basically the same thing, symbolically. The burning weirwood, again, seems to be an entrance or a portal to another realm, one which is opened by Nissa Nissa. Here's the passage. Queen's men in studded jacks and half-helms handed each passing man, woman, or child a piece of white weirwood, a stick, a splintered branch as pale as broken bone, a spray of blood-red leaves, a piece of the old gods to feed the new. John flexed the fingers of his sword hand. That reoccurring line, John flexed the fingers of his sword hand, is essentially a foreshadowing of his death, when he won't be able to grab his sword in time. John's death is the other thing, besides burning mance and burning bits of weirwood, that is implied as the price of admittance for the wildlings, as you may recall from the Green Zombie series. John is a corn king and lets the wildlings through in part so they won't starve, and is then murdered for it. John and Mance have similar King of Winter symbolism, so that's all fairly copacetic. The King of Winter is sacrificed like Jesus in order to feed the masses. But what about that line about a piece of the old gods to feed the new? This idea is emphasized only two paragraphs later. They came on, clutching their scraps of wood, until the time came to feed them to the flames. Relor was a jealous deity, ever hungry, so the new god devoured the corpse of the old and cast gigantic shadows of Stannis and Melisandre upon the wall, black against the ruddy red reflections on the ice. Again we see the new fire god devouring the old gods of the Weirwoods. But here's the thing. The new god is really a combination of the fire and the Weirwood tree. The burning tree is the symbol of the fire of the gods come down to man, and that's created when the tree is set ablaze. However, in terms of symbolism, the burning weirwood is like Moses' burning bush, and like dragonglass, 
and like denaries in the pyre. It burns without being consumed. Accordingly, the old gods are dead, but not gone. It's even true in a literal sense, as we know that the wildlings continue to carve faces on trees south of the wall, even after this sham weirwood burning ceremony that Mel puts them through. Consider also the weirwood stumps of the High Heart, where the ghost says that the old gods linger still. Those old gods are hard to kill because they are already dead. What is dead can never die, after all. In any case, this new god is the burning weirwood, and it's casting gigantic black shadows of Stannis and Melisandre onto the ice. And I'll just read this line again to you because it's really important. So the new god devoured the corpse of the old and cast gigantic shadows of Stannis and Melisandre upon the wall, black against the ruddy red reflections on the ice. This is actually another fabulous paralleling of the Shadow Babies to the Night's Watch brothers, specifically the original undead Night's Watch that I'm theorizing in the Green Zombies theory. Consider, the idea of Mel and Stannis casting black shadows seems like a clear allusion to creating the Shadow Babies, while the idea of black shadows on the ice of the wall would seem to suggest the Night's Watch brothers, who are black shadows that man the wall, black shadows on the ice. But these black shadows are cast by the burning weirwood, and that's what makes them undead Greenseer Night's Watch brothers. They have been resurrected, or cast, by the burning weirwood, with a little help from Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, as played by Stannis and Melisandre. Is this more foreshadowing of Melisandre resurrecting Jon and making him into an undead Night's Watch brother? A black shadow on the ice? She may or may not use burning weirwood in this hypothetical ceremony, but we do expect Ghost, who looks like a walking weirwood tree, to be involved. Mel and Ghost might combine to cast the shadow of Jon, in other words, just as the burning weirwood and Mel and Stannis make the shadows on the ice here. Notice also the language which makes the new god sound like a burning corpse. The fire devours the corpse of the old gods, which is made up of splintered branches as pale as broken bone and sprays of blood-red leaves. It's a corpse, but it's been set on fire. So now it's a burning corpse, right? Well, that's the king of winter, a burning corpse. And that's what John will be if he's resurrected with fire, a burning corpse. That's basically what a Zora High Reborn is, a burning corpse. There's a reason why I've been using the phrase weirwood goddess. The idea of Nissa Nissa as a weirwood, which facilitates the resurrection of a Zora High, or the group of people remembered as a Zora High, is a reference to classic horned god mythology. The horned god is a solar deity who is sacrificed and resurrected and the lunar mother goddess is typically the one who does the resurrecting. What we're seeing with all these Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess scenes is Nissa Nissa both killing and resurrecting Azor High figures. And of course, this plays into the idea of death transformation, which is both death and rebirth. That's what's going on with the ritual of the Black Brothers giving their oaths to the weirwoods. It simulates a death and resurrection process facilitated by the weirwood, or we might say, by the weirwood goddess. I suspect that what we're really talking about here is that Nissa Nissa's blood magic killing somehow paved the way for Azor Ahai or Azor Ahai and his group to enter the weirwood net, but it's likely that some part of Nissa Nissa went in too, and then had something further to say on the ensuing events. In fact, here's our official hypothesis so far. Nissa Nissa was killed and went into the weirwood first, so that when Azor Ahai then weds the tree, he's actually wedding Nissa Nissa. 
This type of scenario makes a lot more sense with Nissa Nissa as a child of the forest or human-child hybrid, a weirwood dryad, if you will, as she would already have a connection to the weirwoods for Zor High to work his dark sorcery on. That might be why Azor High needed her in the first place. And it's the obvious significance of Nissa Nissa being a child of the forest. She would have green seer magic in her blood and a connection to the weirwood trees. Now, if Nissa Nissa was an elf first, and then a spirit inside of the tree, it explains why we found our sacrificed Nissa Nissa characters playing the role of both weirwood trees and children of the forest. It also explains how Azor High can kill Nissa Nissa and then have Nissa Nissa both receive his ensuing sacrificial blood and also resurrect him. She's resurrecting him from inside the weirwood net. Finally, consider how I've been saying that Lightbringer the Burning Sword and the symbolically burning weirwood trees are twin forms of the fire of the gods, or if you prefer, Lightbringer the Burning Sword and Lightbringer the Burning Tree. The duality of the sea dragon symbolism, y'all remember that. Now recall the words which memorialize the last bits of Nissa Nissa's essence. Her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Nissa Nissa went into Lightbringer, in other words, and became part of it. And the weirwood trees are a form of Lightbringer. Think of Barak's cage of fire, created by the fiery ghosts left behind by his flaming sword. Those would symbolize Nissa Nissa's ghosts, since they're coming from Lightbringer, and they are encaging Azor High. That's the exact same idea as the burning weirwood which imprisons Mance, or the burning heart tree which swallows Stannis' black stag. It's a Zor High in a burning weirwood prison, with Nissa Nissa as the prison guard. Weirwind at the High Heart This section is brought to you by our newest Patreon, Priest of Starry Wisdom, the mysterious J.R.K., the faceless maester and hacker of the Weirwood Net, as well as our faithful Starry Wisdom acolyte, Silas the Redbeard, chief of the Redsmiths. As it happens, one of the best clues about the ghost of Nissa Nissa, elf woman, lingering on inside the Weirwoods for a time, is our next Weirwood Dryad figure, the ghost of High Heart. She's pretty much a dead ringer for both a child of the forest woman and a ghost who is tied to the Weirwoods. I brought her up very briefly in Venus of the Woods to compare her to Lady Stoneheart, calling them both a kind of tree ghost, like a deathly version of a weirwood dryad. With Lady Stoneheart, it's implied by her being a zombie with burning red eyes who lives in a weirwood cave, but with the ghost of Highheart, it's much more obvious. Here's her description, and this comes from A Storm of Swords. Beside the embers of their campfire, she saw Tom, Lem, and Greenbeard talking to a tiny little woman, a foot shorter than Arya and older than old Nan, all stooped and wrinkled and leaning on a gnarled black cane. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. Her flesh was whiter, the colour of milk, and it seemed to Arya that her eyes were red, though it was hard to tell from the bushes. The old gods stirred will not let me sleep. She heard the woman say. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart, butchering a golden stag high. Before we talk about the ghost of High Heart, wave a quick hello to our friend the Black Shadow with the Burning Heart, who looks like he's, true to form, murdering the Solar Stag Man. Hey, we were just talking about you, man. 
In any case, the ghost of High Heart has a few other visions too, but they're pretty much beside the point for our purposes here, so let's talk about the ghost herself. After catching sight of her, Arya asks Tom Sevenstrings if the children of the forest still live here, or if she might have been a ghost, and both are more or less true. Of course, most people in the fandom believe that the ghost is part child of the forest, and I would tend to think that this is the case. The red eyes are likely the red eyes of one born with the green gifts. Remember that the children of the forest with green seer abilities can have either green or red eyes. We will also see the ghost of High Heart get the eyes like hot coals description in a moment. That's the same one we saw with Melisandre, ghost, and presumably the child of the forest named Coles. And like all of our weirwood moon maidens, the ghost of High Heart has a nice bit of moon symbolism, with her milk-white flesh and hair like a cloud suggesting the familiar image of a moon veiled in clouds. The main point I want to make about her is that she is essentially the ghost of the weirwood trees, a depiction of a ghostly, transformed Nissa Nissa moon maiden who is part child of the forest and now lingers on inside the weirwood net. So how did our ghost become a ghost? To get the answer, let's bring Arya into the discussion. You may recall the ghost of High Heart having a fairly over-the-top reaction to Arya's presence. The dwarf woman studied her with dim red eyes. I see you, she whispered. I see you, wolf child, blood child. I thought it was the Lord who smelled of death. She began to sob, her little body shaking. You are cruel to come to my hill, cruel. I gulched on grief at Summerhall. I need none of yours. Be gone from here, dark heart. Be gone. This seems like a pretty clear indication of Arya's death goddess status. She smells of death even worse than Beric, who is literally the walking dead. But the main thing I want to point out is Summerhall, because it's the place where the ghost gorged on grief and essentially became the ghost that she is. And what is Summerhall? A huge magical bonfire intended to wake dragons, in which multiple dragon people were burned. That's a ground zero bonfire for sure. Also dying in that fire was Jenny of Oldstones, with flowers in her hair like a child of the forest, or a maiden at a spring festival. That's a pretty strong representation of Nissa Nissa as a child of the forest who dies in the Lightbringer bonfire. Don't forget that Jenny married a Targaryen, which again is a match for Nissa Nissa marrying Azor High, whom we believe to be a dragon-blooded person. Both Jenny and her Targaryen prince, Prince Duncan, died at Summerhall, just as Azor High and Nissa Nissa both seem to have died and gone into the Weirwoods. And ever since Nissa Nissa the Elf Woman symbolically died at Summerhall, the ghost of High Heart has haunted the Weirwood stumps of High Heart, which I would say is showing us the ghost of Nissa Nissa the Helpful Elf haunting the Weirwood net. If you think about it, the simple fact that Beric's band has to come inside the Weirwood circle to find the ghost would seem to imply that Nissa Nissa's ghost is in some sense lingering on inside the Weirwood net waiting to be found, perhaps by someone like Bran, or maybe Jon Snow, who is, like Beric, an Azor High reborn figure. On the other hand, when the ghost tells Arya to be gone, I believe this would be akin to the Nissa Nissa presence inside the tree sending out a shadow killer, as Melisandre the Weirwood Moon Maiden sends out the shadow babies. Arya and the ghost are both Nissa Nissa reborn figures, but kind of different. The crone-esque ghost of High Heart is more like the dead spirit stuck inside the tree, while Arya is more like Nissa Nissa reborn back into the world as a killer shadow. 
This killer shadow, of course, is the same figure as the Shadow Babies and my hypothesized resurrected Night's Watch brothers, the Green Zombies. That's one reason why I think George has Arya posing to join the Night's Watch. She's playing into that same shadow killer archetype that the Night's Watch do. Those black shadow killers are emanations from the Weirwood Net, and they are coming, in a sense, from Nissa Nissa. She is their mother, after all. That brings me to the crone. Lem addresses the ghost of High Heart as crone a couple of times, and I think this is probably a clue that the resurrected, undead Nissa Nissa figure is the same thing as the crone archetype. The crone of the Faith of the Seven has two bits of known lore, both of which seem to apply here. The first one was brought to my attention by ravenous reader, the Poetess, so hat tip to her. Thank you, Poetess. Catelyn's inner monologue in A Storm of Swords informs us that the crone is thought of as having let the first raven into the world when she peered through the door of death. Since ravens and crows are pretty much the same in terms of symbolism, this is probably just another way of talking about the weirwood goddess, the crone-like ghost of Nissa Nissa, returning the first Night's Watch crows from the realm of the dead. Peering through the door of death also speaks of being able to cross the veil of tears between life and death. The crone peered through death's door and then let a little bit of death out into the living world, symbolized by the first raven. Of course, ravens also act as messengers of the old gods, another nod to Odin, and thus as a means of communicating with the dead. The crone is said to be wise, and nobody stores more wisdom than the old gods, but to get that wisdom, you have to essentially commune with the dead. Mormont says the children of the forest were supposed to have been able to talk to the dead, and the ghost of Highheart does this by receiving visions and dreams from the collective mind of the dead greenseers, who are known as the old gods. In other words, whether it's helping dead things return to the living world, or carrying the knowledge of the dead to the living world, both of which are symbolized by the crone opening the door of death and letting in the first raven, the crone is a psychopomp figure who crosses the threshold of life and death. This fits in very nicely with everything that we're seeing about the ghost of Nissa Nissa being able to resurrect people from inside the Weirwood Net. It's also a great depiction of Nissa Nissa as a gatekeeper, as we've been seeing a lot today. The other bit of crone lore is that she holds a shining lantern. I'd say in terms of mythical astronomy that that lantern represents the ember in the ashes, also known as our boy Azor High, the Firestarter. As the ember in the ashes, he's inside the Weirwood, awaiting rebirth and conflagration starting, as we discussed during In a Grove of Ash. That's what's being depicted by the burning red eyes of the ghost of Highheart, Lady Stoneheart, Melisandre, Ghost the Direwolf, and Bloodraven. Also, the Crone's Lantern is of course a constellation in A Song of Ice and Fire, encouraging us to identify it with stars. And you know we can't talk about the Crone's Lantern without giving a very special shout-out to our Patreon Guardian of the Crone's Lantern, Lady Jane of House Celtigar, Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dreadship Eclipse Wind. Thanks for all your support, Jane. The next thing about the High Heart that we need to discuss is, well, wind, actually. There's a mysterious ghostly wind that appears at High Heart, and it too seems to be some sort of emanation of someone inside the Weirwood Net who was a child of the forest. Now, besides the presence of the ghost of Highheart, who looks like a child of the forest hybrid, we also hear the Brotherhood tell Arya that the Highheart is haunted with the ghosts of the children of the forest who are slain there. So we are doubly encouraged to think about the ghosts that linger here as children, with the old dwarf woman herself specifically suggesting the ghost of Nissa Nissa as a child of the forest. Then, later in A Storm of Swords, when Arya and the Brotherhood end up back at Highheart again, we see the ghosts manifest as a wind.
Arya walked around the circle of weirwood stumps with the Lord Beric, Squire, Ned, and they stood on top of one, watching the last light fade in the west. From up here, she could see a storm raging to the north, but High Heart stood above the rain. It wasn't above the wind, though. The gusts were blowing so strongly that it felt like someone was behind her, yanking at her cloak. Only when she turned, no one was there. Ghosts, she remembered. High Heart is haunted. Arya has equated the tugging wind with the ghosts of the High Heart, which are the ghosts of dead children, as we discussed. This seems like one of the many times that George is subtly implying that the green seers, or at least the people inside the weirwood net, talk through the wind. We see a similar trick happen a few times at Winterfell, with the wind yanking on people's cloaks with unseen fingers and the like, to imply green seer presence. And of course we know the whole deal about the green seer speaking through the rustling of the leaves. So it makes sense for the wind to be like the ghosts of the children, or like the voice of the ghosts of the children. But here's what's really interesting. I think there's some advanced wordplay going on here to suggest that this wind is the voice of Nissa Nissa's ghost. The ghostly green seer wind tugs on Arya, and it says that when she turned around, no one was there. But Arya is no one, and a ghostly Nissa Nissa child of the forest character in her own right. So is this implying that the weirwood wind, we'll call it the weirwind, is Arya's voice or Arya's song? In other words, is the weirwood ghost wind the voice of Nissa Nissa's ghost in some sense? It kind of makes sense if Nissa Nissa's ghost is inside the weirwood net. Think of the crone opening the door of death and letting the first raven into the world, because the ravens, like the wind, are the communications of the green seers. They are both emanations of the weirwood that are sent out from the weirwood, and I think that's who Arya represents. The ghostly wind returns a page or so later when the dwarf woman appears, and again it reminds us of Arya as it howls like a wolf. That night, the wind was howling almost like a wolf, and there were some real wolves off to the west giving it lessons. Notch, Angai, and Merito Moontown had the watch. Ned, Gendry, and many of the others were fast asleep when Arya spied the small pale shape creeping around the horses. Thin white hair flying wild as she leaned upon a gnarled cane. The woman could not have been more than three feet tall. The firelight made her eyes gleam, as red as the eyes of John's wolf. He was a ghost, too. Arya stole closer and knelt to watch. Thoros and Lem were with Lord Beric when the dwarf woman sat down uninvited by the fire. She squinted at them with eyes like hot coals. The ember and the lemon... Come to honor me again, and his grace, the lord of corpses. Take note of the association made between the ghost of High Heart and John's direwolf ghost, who, like the ghost of High Heart, is also a kind of weirwood ghost, trademark voice of the first men, with red eyes like hot coals. That's another confirmation that the ghost of High Heart is clearly playing into our line of weirwood slash ash tree figures, who are all, like ghost, playing the role of a weirwood tree to some extent. As for that ghost wind, which might be the communication of the silent green seers, we see it howling like a wolf here. That's a ghost wind howling like a wolf that comes from the weirwoods. In the same passage, we get a reference to a silent wolf named Ghost, who symbolizes a weirwood tree, and who is sent by the old gods according to Jon Snow. We'll talk more about Ghost the direwolf in a bit, but you can sort of see the broad picture that's emerging. Ghostly wolves and ravens and winds coming from the weirwood, coming back through death's door. The crone let in the first raven, 
Mel lets the shadow babies into the world, and I've been saying for a while that the Weirwood is the means by which the original Night's Watch crows were raised from the dead. Next we get a passage that mirrors many of the scenes in Venus of the Woods, with an Azora High stag man pouring out his blood to the Weirwood goddess. Beric offers the ghost of Highheart a silver stag for your dreams, and another if you have news for us. But she replies that, I cannot eat a silver stag nor ride one, a skin of wine for my dreams, and for my news, a kiss from the great oaf in the yellow cloak. And she goes further to demand a bit of tongue, and says that her mouth will taste like bones. Lem refuses, and says that she'll only get the flat of his sword from him. So, that's the sex and swordplay motif, very similar to when Asha Greyjoy promises Triss Botley a kiss for every kill in the Wayward Bride chapter. As for the ghost not being able to eat or ride a silver stag, I can't help but notice that Bran and company both ride and eat Coldhands' great elk on their way to the Weirwood Cave. More importantly, the offering of stags to the Weirwood ghost to gain access to her visions from the old gods calls to mind the pattern of sacrificing stags to enter a Weirwood. But she refuses the stags, instead asking for wine, because Weirwood women need to drink blood, as we saw in Venus of the Woods. The dwarf woman drank deep, the wine running down her chin. When she lowered the skin, she wiped her mouth with the back of a wrinkled hand and said, Sour wine for sour tidings. What could be more fitting? The king is dead. Is that sour enough for you? Arya's heart caught in her throat. Which bloody king is dead, crone? Lem demanded. The sour red wine running down her chin is a great bloody mouth blood-drinking symbol, and Arya having her heart in her throat creates a parallel bloody mouth blood-drinking symbol. As the red runs from the ghost of Highheart's mouth, the first thing she says is that the king is dead. Lem calls him a bloody king, reinforcing the idea that the wine the weirwood woman is drinking represents the blood of a sacrificed king. To that I would add that drinking the wine from a skin further suggests the wine as somebody's blood. But whose blood? There's a sneaky wording clue about this when Beric hands her the wineskin. It says that he gave her the wineskin himself, as if Beric was the wineskin himself. That kind of reminds us of red-faced Dantos Hollard, who was called a skin of wine with legs. That's relevant because we saw last time that Azor High can be a sacrificed fool figure, such as with Maester Cresson wearing Patchface's fool's helm, or the phrase fool, Aegon Jinglebell. And Dantos is a sacrificed fool figure along these lines. You may recall him hanging out in the godswood, trying to kiss a red-headed moon maiden, Sansa, before ultimately being sacrificed to help her escape King's Landing. Ergo, the sacrificed Azor High figure is sometimes a fool, and in a sense a wineskin with legs, waiting to pour out his sacrificial blood to the weirwood, as Beric symbolically does here to the ghost of High Heart. This is very much like Jesus and the symbolic ritual of communion, where wine is drunk to represent the idea that Christ's blood has been poured out for the atonement of mankind. Another zombie hero, that Jesus. And so, what we have here is a ghostly weirwood dryad whose mouth tastes like bones, drinking the symbolic blood of a slain Azor High inside a weirwood circle. Blood and bone is the frequently used description of the weirwood coloring, and I can't help but think of the mouth of another weirwood tree, one in particular, which also tastes like bones and drinks blood, and that would be the one at White Tree, which, incidentally, 
is the same scene where John and Mormont have that conversation about the children being able to speak to the dead. Above them loomed the pale limbs and dark leaves of a monstrous great weirwood. It was the biggest tree John Snow had ever seen, the trunk near eight feet wide, the branches spreading so far that the entire village was shaded beneath their canopy. The size did not disturb him so much as the face, the mouth especially. No simple carved slash, but a jagged hollow, large enough to swallow a sheep. Those are not sheep bones, though, nor is that a sheep's skull in the ashes. That sheep that is not a sheep would be the sacrifice, and I can't help but think of Jesus being called the Lamb of God, given the blood-drinking parallels to the communion that we're seeing with the weirwoods. But take a look inside the mouth of this monstrous, flesh-eating weirwood, as John does a moment later. He knelt and reached a gloved hand down into the moor. The inside of the hollow was red with dried sap and blackened by fire. Beneath the skull, he saw another, smaller, the jaw broken off. It was half buried in ash and bits of bone. This is a fascinating little event here, which is often overlooked. Some of the wildlings seem to have been burning sacrifices inside the mouth of the weirwood, as we can tell from the blackened interior of the tree's maw. It's almost as if they think fire magic and weirwoods go together or something. They must be mythical astronomy listeners. Now, I'm not sure what the wildlings were thinking, or if this is a common occurrence, but it is a great symbolic depiction of the weirwoods as a fiery doorway that eats the stag man's sacrifice, much like Melisandre's burning heart, which has swallowed and imprisoned Stannis' black stag, or like horned Lord Mance Raider burning and dancing inside the weirwood cage. Also, think of all the times that we saw the trees swallowing the sun in Weirwood Compendium 4 in a grove of ash. Back at White Tree, that skull in the ashes of the weirwood's bloody mouth should represent the slain Azor High which is probably why it's twice noted to be in the ashes or buried in the ash. And then when Mormont tosses the skull back in, it lands with a puff of ash. That's another nice little nod to the rising ash cloud, which acts as a symbol of the ash tree Yggdrasil, on which the weirwoods are based, of course. Azor High is the ember in the ashes, as we know, and that would seem to be what we're seeing here, with the skull of the sacrificed victim being both inside the ash and inside the symbolic ash tree. You'll recall Beric being resurrected in a grove of ash, of course, and the scene here at White Tree is essentially showing us the archetypal moment, if you will, that comes right before that, when Azor High has been killed in blood and fire and now lies in state inside the Weirwood Net, aka buried in the ash. Going one step further back in the process, Mance burning inside the Weirwood Cage shows us exactly how Azor High got his burnt bones and blood inside the ash tree. And that's complemented by the scene at High Heart, where Beric as Azora High pours out his blood to the Weirwood Goddess, as played by the ghost of High Heart, whose mouth tastes like bone and bloody wine. Beric's one actual on-screen death also fits the bill, and this would be that time in A Storm of Swords when Beric is fighting the Hound inside the Weirwood Cave, only to have his sword break under the force of the Hound's killing blow. The line is, Lord Beric's knees folded slowly. As if for prayer. When his mouth opened, only blood came out. The hound's sword was still in him. As he toppled face forward, the dirt drank his blood. Remember that the earth in that cave is strewn through with weirwood roots. So this is really a terrific example of the prayerful Azor High offering his blood to the weirwood goddess and hoping for resurrection. One final note on the scene at White Tree. There was a second, smaller skull in the tree's mouth as well. 
The implication is that it's the skull of a child, probably a human child, but it works to imply the sacrifice of a child of the forest alongside Azor High. Perhaps this represents the skull of Nissa Nissa, elf woman. All right, well, we still have a bunch of other weirwood maidens to get to, but those will have to wait until the Catwoman episode. And, besides, I think I've kept you waiting for Arya long enough. Let's go ahead and get into some Arya-centric podcasting, shall we? We'll still be hanging out with outlaws in the Riverlands, so it makes for a pretty smooth segue. Squirrel Songs from the Wood This section is brought to you by the unwavering Patreon support of Sir Dale the Winged Fist, the last scion of House Mud, captain of the dread ship Black Squirrel, and knight of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, as well as the faithful support of Bjorn Berserker of the Bear Shirt, Bishop of Kumaraja, who has graduated from Acolyte to High Priest of Starry Wisdom. Let's talk about Arya's name, shall we? An aria is a song in an opera specifically designed to be sung by one person, usually with musical accompaniment. At the most basic level, we can observe that Arya's name is a song, and this would seem to be another reference to her role as symbolizing one of those who sing the Song of Earth. It could be that this is as much as George intended to convey. Arya implies singing, and it makes for a lovely girl's name, and an increasingly popular one in the real world, I might add. But we also have to wonder whether Martin might be playing with the solo singer aspect of the meaning of Arya, especially because Arya herself is quite literally the lone wolf. You will recall Ned's advice to her about the pack surviving and the lone wolf dying, but Arya reviews this advice at Hall and decides that it was wrong, because she survived where so many of her pack died. She thinks the same thought on the ship sailing to Bravos as well. The other possible layer of meaning in her name is that, in a sense, Arya herself is not only the singer, but also the song, because an Arya is literally a song. It's very like the last scene at High Heart where I suggested that the howling ghost wind of the Weirwoods was a symbolic parallel to Arya herself. Arya is like a song or wind coming from the Weirwoods, which I think is another way of describing an emanation from the Weirwood. The idea of Arya as a song sung by the Weirwood, a deadly song, may simply be a very lovely and poetic way of describing the reborn Nissa Nissa, who you better believe is a killer. There's a great line in A Storm of Swords about a dead, child-of-the-forest-like girl being a song as Rob and Cat hang out at Old Stones by the sepulchre of King Christopher Mudd IV, the Hammer of Justice. Rob says, There's a song, Jenny of Old Stones, with the flowers in her hair, to which Catelyn gloomily replies, We're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. As we just mentioned, Jenny reminds us of a child of the forest because the children wear dried flowers in their hair, and she died in a sorceress fire intended to wake dragons, making her a burnt spirit like the ones which haunt Harrenhal. The idea of the only thing left of Jenny being a song again paints the picture of a ghost of a child of the forest who is a song, and that's exactly what Arya is showing us with her song symbolism. This idea is also depicted in A Clash of Kings as Arya journeys up the King's Road with the other Night's Watch recruits. You might remember the little crying girl that follows Arya around for a time. When they first found her, she was with her mother, who had gone through some very severe trauma and was essentially in shock. One arm ended in a ragged stump, and her eyes stared unseeing as she said, please, please, over and over again. She died at Evenfall on the day they found her, and Gendry and Cutjack dug her a grave on a hillside beneath a weeping willow. 
It says, When the wind blew, Arya thought she could hear the long trailing branches whispering, Please, please, please. The little hairs on the back of her neck rose, and she almost ran from the graveside. The ragged stump line might be intended to imply her as a tree woman, and sure enough, the tree she is buried under seems to whisper with her voice after she dies. Obviously, this is very similar to the idea of the ghostly Weirwind being the voice of Nissa Nissa, or of Arya being a song sung by the spirit of Nissa Nissa inside the Weirwood. The Willow Tree also calls to mind Willow Heddle, the girl who runs the Inn at the Crossroads slash the Gallows Inn, which symbolizes a Weirwood, as well as Willow Witch-Eye, the wildling spearwife whose skin is supposedly worn by Mance Raider. There's also some weirwood stigmata here, as the woman stares sightlessly, as if her eyes had been cut out, and is buried under a weeping willow. So that's Arya as a song and a weirwind. The next thing about her that we're going to talk about is that she has all kinds of excellent dryad symbolism. This is from A Storm of Swords, and takes place as the Brotherhood brings Arya to Acorn Hall, the keep of House Smallwood. Lady Smallwood welcomed the outlaws kindly enough, though she gave them a tongue-lashing for dragging a young girl through the war. She became even more wroth when Lem let slip that Arya was highborn. Who dressed the poor child in those bolton rags? She demanded of them. That badge. There's many a man who would hang her in half a heartbeat for wearing a flayed man on her breast. Arya promptly found herself marched upstairs, forced into a tub, and doused with scalding hot water. Lady Smallwood's maidservant scrubbed her so hard, it felt like they were flaying her themselves. They even dumped in some stinky sweet stuff that smelled like flowers. And afterward, they insisted she dress herself in girls' things, brown woolen stockings and a light linen shift, and over that... A light green gown with acorns embroidered all over the bodice in brown thread, and more acorns bordering the hem. My great-aunt is a septa at a mother house in Old Town, Lady Smallwood said, as the women laced the gown up Arya's back. I sent my daughter there when the war began. She'll have outgrown these things by the time she returns, no doubt. Are you fond of dancing, child? My Karelin's a lovely dancer. She sings beautifully as well. What do you like to do? She scuffed a toe amongst the rushes. Needlework? Very restful, isn't it? Well, Arya said, not the way I do it. No, I've always found it so. The gods give each of us our little gifts and talents, and it is meant for us to use them, my aunt always says. Any act can be a prayer, if done well as we are able. Isn't that a lovely thought? Remember that the next time you do your needlework. Starting from the end and working backward, Arya does make her needlework a prayer because she chants the names of those she intends to kill as she practices her swordplay, and even calls it her prayer. Her prayer is killing, and this of course fits well with her joining a death cult, as she does at the House of Black and White. Then we have the green acorn dress and its former owner, a girl of small wood who sings and dances, recalling the children of the forest who perform magic through song and dance, and whose warriors were called wood dancers. Of course, the dress itself is suggestive of a tree person, as Gendry points out to Arya that night after dinner. I look like an oak tree, with all these stupid acorns. Nice, though. A nice oak tree. He stepped closer and sniffed at her. You even smell nice for a change. 
This is along the same lines of the child of the forest named Ash, and all the spearwives who are named after trees. Arya is a tree girl, a dryad. The oak tree is the tree of the Summer King, the green Garth figure in A Song of Ice and Fire, though Arya is pretty quick to sully her dress when she wrestles with Gendry. You'll recall from the previous quote that after the serving women took Arya's flayed man Bolton clothes, it fell to Arya as if their scrub brushes were flaying her, and then she was put in the green acorn dress that made her look like a tree. To me, that's showing us our elf character being skinned and killed and perhaps having her skin changer powers taken, as with the six spearwives supposedly giving up their skins to Mance in the cage. Arya is symbolically skinned and then put in the tree dress, which equates to being sacrificed and then put inside the weirwood net. As a matter of fact, when Jon Snow is chewing on the outrages contained in Ramsay's pink letter in A Dance with the Dragons, we get another Arya as a tree woman clue, and side by side with a reference to those six skinned spearwives. It says, He thought of Arya, her hair as tangled as a bird's nest. And of course, if Arya in the acorn dress looks like a tree, it figures that her hair would be a good place for bird's nests. That line is immediately followed by John recalling Ramsay's words, I made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. With his bride, meaning Jane Poole, disguised as Arya. As for the Spearwives, we're pretty sure that they symbolize children of the forest, as does Arya, who is supposed to be Ramsay's bride. So I would say that all of this is talking about Nissa Nissa and skin changing, from the skinned Spearwives to Arya being flayed and then put in the acorn dress. Additionally, when Melisandre sees a gray girl on a dying horse, whom she thinks is Arya in one of her fire visions, she describes it thusly, a girl as gray as ash, and even as I watched, she crumbled and blew away. This is a sneaky way of using fake Arya to imply more ash tree maiden symbolism on the real Arya, as with the wildling named Squirrel, who took the place of Jane Poole, who in turn was pretending to be Arya. Also, when this gray ash aria crumbles and blows away, she would then become a gray wind or a ghost wind, as we were speaking of earlier, or we might say that an ashy wind implies a wind that comes from the weirwoods, which are like ash trees. It's the weir wind. Returning to the scene at Acorn Hall, we find that as soon as Arya is dressed up like a tree in the green acorn dress, along comes Gendry, the fiery bull and horned lord figure, to wrestle with Arya and besmirch her dress, tearing it. Arya even triumphantly shouts, I bet I don't look so nice now, which is pretty hilarious. This might be evidence for our proposed sequence of Nissa Nissa being sacrificed first, followed by Azora High wetting the tree and Nissa Nissa simultaneously when he became a full greenseer. What actually happened is that Arya was sent out of the common room by Greenbeard, with Gendry following her out and suggesting a visit to the Smallwoods Forge, and that's where they wrestle. The forge by itself is important as a symbol. That's a place where you can turn moon maidens into lightbringer swords, after all, and the idea of a forge in a small wood or an acorn hall implies a tree forge, which works nicely to equate the burning moon that the Lightbringer meteors were forged in with the burning tree where Azor High Reborn was forged. And sure enough, as soon as they go into the forge, what do they begin talking about but Thoros's flaming swords and how Gendry's master smith, Tobo Mott, used to supply them to Thoros. Tobo told Gendry that the flaming swords were just an alchemist trick, but that they scared the horses and some of the greener knights. 
that fits the way I am seeing Azor Ahai's transformation from green man into a fiery undead lord. It was an abomination to the green ways, a sacrilege that would have terrified the still green men who didn't go along with Azor Ahai's evil deeds. Gendry even treats Arya like a sword, reaching out with the smithy tongs as if to pinch her face in jest. That's when Gendry goes on to talk about Thoros bravely storming Castle Pike with King Robert, and we get that line I quoted at the beginning about Arya wishing she had a flaming sword, and how she could think of lots of people she'd like to set on fire. From Moon Maiden to Wielder of Lightbringer, just like Daenerys transforming from Moon Mother of Dragons to the last dragon in her own right, Denazor Ahai reborn. Even better... After Arya comes back inside with her dirty and torn acorn dress, Lady Smallwood makes her bathe again and gives her a dress with heavy moon symbolism, lilac-colored and decorated with little baby pearls. This reminds us of Daenerys pretty strongly, with the lilac and white of the pearls, and of course pearls are a big moon symbol. Danny wears baby pearls too because of course she is the moon maiden numero uno. I would say that the green acorn tree dress and the purple baby pearl dress work together to paint a picture of Nissanissa, a moon maiden and a child of the forest. Much to Arya's delight, this lilac and baby pearl affair is simply unsuitable for riding, so the next day when the Brotherhood leaves Acorn Hall, Lady Smallwood gives her clothes much more to Arya's liking, which are the clothes of Lady Smallwood's dead son, a brown doeskin jerkin dotted with iron studs. Lots to unpack there. It's one of many gender flips for Arya. The doe skin alludes to the children of the forest who have dappled skin like a doe's. And the iron studs might seem to take the child of the forest symbolism and make it more militant. Martin might even be implying Arya as a door with iron studs, because of course, weird doors are a thing. Most important is the doe skin, because that's such a good child of the forest clue coming on the heels of her looking like a tree. Now is probably a good time to mention that there are six occurrences of Arya saying or thinking to herself, swift as a deer. We will also see her get the dappled descriptor in just a moment. Now Tom of Sevens sings a song, which kind of gives away the game, actually, when Arya and Gendry come back inside after their little scuffle. Tom winked at her as he sang, And how she smiled and how she laughed, the maiden of the tree. She spun away and said to him, No feather bed for me. I'll wear a gown of golden leaves And bind my hair with grass. But you can be my forest love And me your forest lass. Well now, the maiden of the tree is a forest lass with a gown of leaves and grass in her hair? Every bit of that fits the description of a child of the forest that we read at the beginning of the episode. A cloak of leaves and hair that was a tangle of brown and red and gold. Autumn colors with vines and twigs and withered flowers woven through it. Tom looks at Arya in her dirty acorn dress as he sings all of this, making sure that we catch the drift. We should also take note of the theme of the song. The forest lass is untamable and won't be civilized. That applies to Arya, obviously, but also to Jenny of Oldstones, whom the forest lass of Tom's song reminds us as well. Prince Duncan Targaryen had to give up his claim to the throne in order to marry his Jenny. They got together on her terms, in other words, just like the forest lass who refuses the featherbed but invites the object of the song to be her forest lass. As you can see, Arya is off to a great start as a dryad figure so far. 
and we haven't even talked about the squirrel thing yet, which is, of course, the next line of symbolism that pegs her as one who sings the Song of Earth, a.k.a. the Squirrel People. It turns out, Arya is a squirrel, whether she likes it or not. This is from A Storm of Swords. There were a dozen men living in the vault beneath the sept, amongst cobwebs and roots and broken wine casks, but they had no word of Beric Dondarrion either, not even their leader, who wore soot blackened armour and a crude lightning bolt on his cloak. When Greenbeard saw Arya staring at him, he laughed and said, The lightning lord is everywhere and nowhere, skinny squirrel. I'm not a squirrel, she said. I'll almost be a woman soon. I'll be one and ten. Best watch out I don't marry you then. He tried to tickle her under the chin, but Arya slapped his stupid hand away. Arya was also called a skinny squirrel in the scene at Acorn Hall, while Arya was wearing the acorn dress, no less. It was right before her tussle with Gendry, when Greenbeard ordered her out of the main room while the Brotherhood discussed sensitive matters about the Starks, saying, Go on with you, skinny squirrel. Be a good little lady and go play in the yard while we talk now. At the time, it just seemed like a cute nickname, of course, but now we see it for what it is, an indicator that Arya is playing the role of a child of the forest. There are two important archetypal roles woven into these Arya scenes in the Riverlands besides Arya. The Garth the Green figure, played by the towering, boisterous outlaw named Greenbeard, remember that Garth the Green was specifically said to have a green beard, and the familiar Azor High figure, played occasionally by Gendry but more often by Beric, and Beric's lookalikes who apparently hang out amidst roots and cobwebs in cellars beneath holy places with a dozen men. Beric needs no introduction, but we will take a moment to introduce Greenbeard. But before we do, take note of that line about the Lightning Lord being everywhere and nowhere. That's a perfect description of the Weirwood Net, and it reminds us of how the old gods are said to watch with a thousand unseen eyes. Along with Beric's sitting in a kind of Weirwood throne, having the one-eyed Odin symbolism, this everywhere-nowhere talk is yet another indication of Azor High having gone into the Weirwood Net. It's also a nice compliment to Beric being in a fiery cage of Lightbringer ghosts, as we mentioned earlier. But as I was saying, we know Beric pretty well, while Greenbeard is new to mythical astronomy. Greenbeard is a Terashi, hence the habit of dyeing his beard green, and he's especially noteworthy because his green beard is going gray. This is made note of a couple of times, with this scene at the friendly yet disreputable establishment known as the Peach being the best by far. The buxom red-haired innkeep howled with pleasure at the sight of them, and promptly set to tweaking them. Greenbeard, is it? Or Greybeard? Mother take mercy, when did you get so old? This gives you an idea of what's going on here. We're seeing a depiction of Garth the Green, or a green man like Garth, turning into the specifically grey-bearded and very old Grey King. This is a cycle we've discussed at length elsewhere, so this idea should be familiar to you. At least vaguely familiar. I'll settle for vaguely familiar. Anyway, Greenbeard also has Garth-like fertility god things going on. When they first settle in at the Peach, it says, Greenbeard had two girls, one on each knee. But in the morning, when they are looking for Greenbeard, he's found a bed with a third woman, Tansy, the buxom, red-haired innkeep, quote-unquote, from the earlier scene. Dude gets around like a fertility god, in other words, and this explains the line in the earlier scene where Greenbeard jokes about marrying Arya. To the extent Arya represents Nissa Nissa as one of the squirrel people, one of the children of the forest, the implication is of being paired with a green man, 
one who is ready to undergo death transformation and become a Grey King figure, or who is in the process of doing so. Tansy, with her red hair and her name taken from a plant, might be another kissed-by-fire tree maiden, similar to Willow who kept the Inn at the Crossroads, a.k.a. the Gallows Inn that's kind of like a weirwood tree. As a matter of fact, Tansy T is also known as Moon T in the story, encouraging us to see Tansy as a moon maiden. Thus, Tansy being paired with Green and Greybeard may be parallel symbolism to Arya marrying Greenbeard, with both suggestive of a green to gray man wedding Nissa Nissa. And how does a green man become an undead gray king figure? Why? By fire transformation, of course. And Greenbeard drops a strong clue about this in A Storm of Swords. Greenbeard stroked his thick gray and green whiskers and said, The wolves will drown in blood if the king's lair is loose again. Thoros must be told. The Lord of Light will show him Lannister in the flames. There's a fine fire burning here, said Angai, smiling. Greenbeard laughed. He cuffed the archer's ear. Do I look like a priest to you, archer? When Pello of Tyrosh peers into the fire, the cinders singe his beard. When I Google searched for a possible meaning of the word Pello, the top result by far was the Spanish word Pello, spelled with one fewer L, which means hair. And that makes a great deal of sense for a character defined by his hair, like Greenbeard. Just thought you'd find that interesting. If you're ever writing a fantasy novel and need creative names for side characters, using words from other languages is one way to do it while also injecting a bit more symbolism. Anyway, it seems that if the green and gray-whiskered Pello of Tyrosh were ever to try to become a fire priest, his beard would likely catch fire, and then he'd be a burning green man, like a king of winter or a burning fire-transformed Azor High who used to be a green man. Greenbeard is justifiably leery of trying to use fire magic, just as Gendry told us that the greener knights were scared of Thoros's flaming swords. Fire turns green men into corpses, like the Grey King, or like my hypothetical undead Night's Watch brothers. In fact, think back to the severed, eyeless head of the Night's Watch brother named Garth Greyfeather, which we saw impaled on the Ashwood Spear to make the symbolic diagram of the bloody-faced Weirwood Tree. You remember that one, right? It's one of my very favorite bits of symbolism in the entire series. An Ashwood Spear for the Ash Tree, the carved bloody face of Garth to represent the bloody faces of the Garth trees, with an injection of Night's Watch symbolism, green to gray symbolism, the waves of blood and night symbolism, and the ash spear as a meteor symbolism. It's a pretty good one. That's the same stuff that we're talking about here with Greenbeard turning into a gray beard or catching on fire, a green Garth undergoing death transformation involving his merging with the symbolic burning ash tree, being burned with the fire of the gods, so to speak, and becoming a Grey Garth. So that's Greenbeard, an altogether interesting fellow, I would say. I hope you enjoyed that little detour, as we can't just gallop by Garth the Green symbolism like that and not say anything. And of course, it will help us understand Arya's scenes with him, particularly since it is Greenbeard who names her Skinny Squirrel. So now that we've established Greenbeard, let's get back to Arya. Arya is not just a squirrel, but a golden squirrel, as we see in this scene from Storm of Swords. Little one. Greenbeard answered. A peasant may skin a common squirrel for his pot, but if he finds a gold squirrel in his tree, he takes it to his lord, or he will wish he did. I'm not a squirrel, Arya insisted. You are, Greenbeard laughed. A little gold squirrel who's off to see the lightning lord. Whether she wills it or not, he'll know what's to be done with you. 
I'll wager he sends you back to your lady mother, just as you wish. She's a squirrel of great price, if you will, instead of a pearl of great price. I meant that as a joke, but it actually fits pretty well because pearls are classic moon symbols and are used as drowned moon symbols in A Song of Ice and Fire. And furthermore, the Lightbringer meteors, the pieces of falling moon, are analogous to the Pearl of Great Price, and Azor High bought those meteors for the low, low price of breaking the moon and causing the long night. Arya, the golden squirrel of great value, is being taken to an Azor High reborn figure in Beric, which kind of makes the point. In fact, what we might be seeing here is a green man, Garth figure in Greenbeard, taking a child of the forest to Azor High, played by Beric, almost like the green men offering up a sacrifice to Mr. Flaming Swordman. Greenbeard was also the one who sent Arya into the forge with Gendry, labeling her a skinny squirrel as he did so, which seems like the same symbolism as bringing her to Beric. Notice also Greenbeard's talk of skinning squirrels when you find them, as well as the skin-changing allusion in the name Skinny Squirrel itself. A squirrel that has been skinned is skinny indeed. Now it seems likely that the idea of a gold squirrel is doubly intended as a reference to the children of the forest, who have golden eyes and hair that is red and gold and brown. I tend to think it probably is, since Arya is already established as symbolizing a children of the forest. But Arya is not just any squirrel. It's clear that everyone is seeing her as a valuable or exceptional sort of squirrel, as Nissa Nissa must have been. Alright, so Arya is a squirrel. And what do squirrels do? They climb trees, and they keep secrets. Well, secret stashes of acorns, anyway. Of course, if you're one of the squirrel people known as the children of the forest, your secret acorns are, well, you know, the collective memory of most everything that's ever happened for thousands of years. Arya herself is certainly one to keep secrets. That's how Bran sees her in his coma dream vision in A Game of Thrones, watching in silence and holding her secrets hard in her heart. There's also something to acorn symbolism, it seems to stand in for weirwood paste in many scenes, but let's talk about tree climbing, as that's kind of the heart of the matter. The tree climbing symbolism is pretty easy to grab onto, because squirrels climb trees, just as the children do. What's really cool is that Martin was setting up this line of symbolism long before we ever saw any children of the forest or heard that they were called the squirrel people in A Dance with Dragons. It's all the way back in A Clash of Kings, at the wildling village called White Tree that we visited earlier. Right after John and Lord Commander Mormont contemplate the skulls and the ashes of the weirwood mouth and talk of the children of the forest's ability to speak to the dead, we see the Night's Watch ranger Bedwick climbing into the weirwood. We actually quoted this scene in the Green Zombie series, but it's worth revisiting. John heard a rustling from the red leaves above. Two branches parted, and he glimpsed a little man moving from limb to limb as easily as a squirrel. Bedwick stood no more than five feet tall, but the grey streaks in his hair showed his age. The other rangers called him Giant. He sat in a fork of the tree over their heads and said, There's water to the north, a lake might be. A few flint hills rising to the west, not very high. Nothing else to see, my lords. Bedwick is a small man, ironically called Giant, and the singers are very long-lived beings who are, somewhat ironically, called children. Despite his sprightly, squirrel-like climbing skills, Bedwick is old too, as his gray hair testifies. Calling him a little man also evokes the idea of elves and little green men. Of course, the main point is that this old yet childlike squirrel man is climbing a weirwood, and that is generally the point of calling the children squirrel people. They are tied to weirwoods, and even used to live in those tree towns old Nan was talking about. 
Bedwick's name also implies a mix of fire magic and weirwood magic. A bed is where you sleep and dream, and a wick is a thing which catches on fire. Thus, his name roughly translates to one who catches on fire in bed, or one who catches the bed on fire, which is a perfect description of Azora High setting the weirwood net on fire. The other layer to the symbolism of climbing a tree is that it refers to the Jacob's Ladder implication of the weirwood and other such cosmic world trees. Yggdrasil was a means for Odin to transcend death and gain access to the cosmos and the nine realms. The tree in the Garden of Eden gave Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil, making them more like gods, according to the serpent. And the notion of Bran using the weirwoods to fly is very similar. It's also kind of the same concept as the crone letting the ravens into the world from the realm of the dead, as we know the ravens carry the words of the dead green seers to living men. It's communicating with the dead. On a practical level, a lookout climbs a tree to gain knowledge and far sight, and that's symbolically what is going on when a green seer uses the weirwood to see. And this is nicely spelled out here with Bedwick, the giant squirrel man, climbing the weirwood to get a view of the land. And now that we've visited White Tree three times in this episode, we can kind of piece together what's happening there. First, we find the skulls that show Azor High and Nissa Nissa in the tree's mouth, sacrificed. Then Mormont speaks of the children of the forest talking to the dead. Then we see Bedwick, the elf man, Night's Watch brother, climbing the weirwood. You'll notice Bedwick was sitting in the fork of the tree, which could be read to imply Bedwick as a morsel of food about to be eaten by the tree. And of course, that's exactly the right idea, the tree eating the greenseer. So with that said, Arya has three tree climbing scenes that we're going to quote here today. Two of them occur in the Harrenhal's Godswood, which I will give their own section. The first one, however, fits in well with all the talk of squirrels and singing that we're doing here, and this comes to us in A Clash of Kings. Three days later, as they rode through a yellow wood, Jack be lucky unslung his horn and blew a signal, a different one than before. The sounds had scarcely died away when rope ladders unrolled from the limbs of the trees. Hobble the horses and up we go, said Tom, half singing the words. They climbed to a hidden village in the upper branches, a maze of rope walkways and little moss-covered houses, concealed behind walls of red and gold, and were taken to the Lady of the Leaves, a stick-thin white-haired woman, dressed in rough-spun. We cannot stay here much longer with autumn on us, she told them. A dozen wolves went down the Hayford Road nine days past, hunting. If they chanced to look up, they might have seen us. You have not seen Lord Berwick? asked Tom Sevenstrings. He's dead, the woman sounded sick. The mountain caught him and drove a dagger through his eye. A begging brother told us he had it from the lips of a man who saw it happen. Look, it's a tree town. This scene goes by so quick that I hardly noticed it on my first couple of reads. Now, the Lady of the Leaves has obvious weirwood symbolism. Besides the fact that she lives in a tree, she's got white hair and is like a stick. White sticks equal white wood equal weirwood. She kind of reminds us of a less gloomy version of the Ghost of the High Heart, and she's tied to her tree kingdom as the Ghost of High Heart is tied to her weirwood stumps. What's notable is that Jack be lucky, with his wonderful combination of one-eyed Odin symbolism and Jack in the Green, Green Man symbolism, blows a horn in order for them to gain entrance to the tree kingdom of this Lady of the Leaves, with Tom's seven strings singing as they went up. Once inside, we get a reference to a symbolic event that should be taking place inside the Weirwood Net, and that would be Beric's one-eyed Odin transformation experience. 
It's very similar to when we heard the ghost of High Heart speak of the black shadows with burning hearts killing the solar stag while standing inside a weirwood circle, implying that some version of these events might have taken place inside the weirwood net. I have to say, I'm increasingly becoming convinced that there might have been a whole series of events and players inside the weirwood net for us to try to piece together, and I think in the last two books, we might see some sort of conflict go down inside the weirwood net as well, likely involving John and or Bran and whatever dead spirits might linger on in there. We've got Azora High and Nissa Nissa going in, and Black Shadows and White Shadows both seeming to come out, so something's going on in there. More on this to come. On a basic level, Arya's weird little detour into what can only be called a tree town seems like a way to draw out and enhance Arya's squirrel symbolism and make us think of the children of the forest specifically. I always say that Martin leaves his clues in bunches, so he shows us Arya as a squirrel that might make a bride for a green-bearded giant up in a tree town with one-eyed Jack and an old dwarf woman. One of the interesting known facts about George, and this comes from his editor, is that he consciously makes an effort to, at first, leave very subtle clues about a given mystery, with progressively more obvious clues leading up to the reveal. The foreshadowing of the Red Wedding is a great example of this, as is John's death in Book 5. It's true with the Arya as a child of the forest clues as well. By the time Bran calls the first earth singer he meets the Arya thing in A Dance with the Dragons, Martin had already been leaving a nice trail of breadcrumbs through the woods, with this tree town bit being amongst my favorites. The next pair of tree climbing scenes come at the Harrenhal Godswood, where Arya practices her needlework with a makeshift wooden sword. These are some of Arya's very best scenes, so we'll take a good close look at them. We'll also make this a section break. The Ghost in the Godswood. This section is brought to you by the longtime Patreon support of the Orange Man, priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom and resident Oompa Loompa of the podcast, as well as the support of Starry Wisdom acolyte Sir Gribbons of the Godswood, the Anteater, extinguisher of the flame and servant of the drowned god. In case Sirio Forel calling Arya a dead girl isn't clear enough, and in case the ghost of High Heart saying Arya smells more like death than an actual walking corpse doesn't quite spell it out for you, Arya's Harrenhal chapters firmly establish Arya's death goddess status through her ghost in Harrenhal identity. She's not just the ghost in Harrenhal, however. She's really the ghost in the Weirwood. Throughout all of her paranormal activity, Arya will maintain and enhance her squirrel and dryad symbolism, and that leads us to thinking of Arya, and by extension Nissa Nissa, as a ghost figure who's tied to the Weirwoods, an idea that we've been picking up on already, to say the least. This chapter comes as Arya has already had Jake and Hagar kill two people for her, which Arya refers to as killing with a whisper, an appropriate mantra for a Weirwood assassin. After filching a tart from Hot Pie, she feels daring, and it says, Barefoot, surefoot, lightfoot, she sang under her breath. I am the ghost in Harrenhal. That's Arya, both whispering and singing about being a ghost. I've already claimed that she represents the ghost of a singer who can make the weirwood whisper, so there you go. The chapter actually opens with Hot Pie talking about ghosts, and a moment after Arya calls herself the ghost in Harrenhal, we get a long description of all the creepy noises around Harrenhal. A high, shivery scream from the Wailing Tower, which kind of sounds like Nissa Nissa's death cry, the widow's wail, being conflated with the wind. There's leaves fallen from the trees and the godswood skittering around the courtyard, 
and the echoes of normal footfalls becoming a ghostly army, and the line, every distant voice, a ghostly feast. Those are all symbols that remind us of Brand's chapter at the Night Fort, where the dead leaves became a ghostly army and that sort of thing, in an apparent series of clues about people being resurrected through the weirwood trees. That's the same topic of discussion in these Hall chapters as well, weirwood resurrection. After all that, we learn that the sounds bothered Hot Pie, but not Arya, because she is of course a ghost and a wolf, and maybe a ghost wind that howls like a wolf, and she ain't scurred or no wind or no ghosts. She's a ghost among ghosts. Then it says, Quiet as a shadow, she flitted across the middle bailey, out around the Tower of Dread, and through the empty mews, where people said the spirits of dead falcons stirred the air with ghostly wings. She could go where she would. The garrison numbered no more than a hundred men, so small a troop that they were lost in Harrenhal. The hall of a hundred halves was closed off, along with many of the lesser buildings. Even the Wailing Tower, Sir Amory Lorch, resided in the Castellan's chambers in Kingspire, themselves as spacious as a lord's, and Arya and the other servants had moved to the cellars beneath him so they would be close at hand. Two important things here the continuation of Arya's ghost and shadow imagery, and the bit about her living in the cellars beneath Kingspire Tower. The Kingspire Tower is one of the best symbols of the Ground Zero bonfire and the Tower of Smoke and Ash which rose from it, meaning that it is, in part, a burning tree symbol. And you'll recall that according to Catelyn's knowledge, when Black Heron built this castle, weirwoods that had stood 3,000 years were cut down for beams and rafters, making it that much more of a burning tree symbol. We will be referencing the King's Pyre Tower several times in this section, and it always functions as the burning tree and the ground zero bonfire. Even better, the lord in residence at King's Pyre Tower is Sir Amory Lorch, the same man who created that burning tree sorcerer at the abandoned holdfast near the God's Eye, while Arya, Yorn, and the rest of the Night's Watch recruits were penned up inside. The operative line there was, Arya saw a tree consumed the flames creeping across its branches until it stood against the night in robes of living orange. In other words, when Sir Amory goes to live in Kingspire Tower, he's bringing all that burning tree symbolism with him as he walks into the pyre, so to speak. This reinforces Kingspire Tower as a burning tree, with Sir Amory following Black Heron as a man burning inside that pyre. Recall that Sir Amory is one of Tywin's dogs, and his sigil is a black manticore, both of which cast him as a black moon meteor burning with the sun's fire, such as the thunderbolt meteor which set the tree ablaze in the Grey King story. Sir Amory living inside King's Pyre is the same as Mance inside the burning weirwood cage, or Beric inside his cage of fire, or Drogo burning on his pyre of wood for that matter. Living beneath King's Pyre Tower, which is like a burning tree, we find Arya, living in a cellar actually, which is a lot like a cavern. Think of the caverns below weirwood trees where the squirrel people live, that's the idea. Of course, Arya is playing the ghost in Harrenhal role in these chapters, so again, she's expressing child of the forest symbolism, coupled with vengeful ghost symbolism, what I'm calling the ghost in the godswood. Now to the godswood and the heart of the matter, or perhaps we should say the heart tree of the matter. This is the other important location in these Harrenhal scenes, and as you might expect, it seems to represent the Weirwood Net, or Weirwood World if you prefer, much as the secret tree town that Arya and the Brotherhood visit does. As Arya reaches the Godswood, she pulls her hidden stick sword from beneath a deadfall of rotting wood and twisted, splintered branches, 
for a little light needlework. Gendry was too stubborn to make one for her, so she had made her own by breaking the bristles off a broom. She's a witch! A witch! Burn her! Burn her. Oh, oh, sorry. Her blade was much too light and had no proper grip, but she liked the sharp, jagged, splintery end. Sorry for interrupting again, but we were just told that her sword is light. Think sword of light, and that it has no proper grip. It's a sword without a hilt, in other words, calling to mind the sage wisdom of the Horned Lord, as quoted to Jon Snow by Dalla, Mance Raider's wife. The Horned Lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. In other words, Martin is doubly implying Arya as having a magic sword. It's a sword of light, and its hiltlessness is a symbol of sorcery. Oh, and I can't help but notice it's also a broken sword, like the last hero's broken sword, Beric's broken sword, Ned's ice reforged as two swords, and all the other broken swords we've talked about. And it's also a sword that comes from a tree, since it's a stick sword, like Odin's sword Graham, taken from the Barnstalker or Branstalker tree. Picking back up with a quote, Whenever she had a free hour, she stole away to work at the drills Sirio had taught her moving barefoot over the fallen leaves, slashing at branches and whacking down leaves. Sometimes she even climbed the trees and danced among the upper branches, her toes gripping the limbs as she moved back and forth, teetering a little less every day as her balance returned to her. Night was the best time. No one ever bothered her at night. Arya also thinks to herself in this chapter that Sirio had told her that darkness can be your friend. That has to remind us of Bloodraven telling Bran to never fear the darkness, and that the strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong. It also reminds us of what Bran said to John while appearing to him as a weirwood tree in John's first real skin changer wolf dream experience in the Frostfangs. The weirwood tree with Bran's face, which has three eyes and smells of death, says to John, don't be afraid. I like it in the dark. No one can see you, but you can see them. But first you have to open your eyes. See? Like this. Then the brand tree reaches down and touches John, sending his spirit hurtling straight into Ghost for his most controlled and vivid warging experience to date. Consider Brand's words. In the dark, no one can see you. Indeed, we know someone called No One, who was also a symbolic tree person like Bran, and can see in the darkness and who has learned to open her third eye and see through the eyes of her wolf at night. That would be our friend, the Night Wolf, who is similarly fond of the darkness and nighttime, and also finds it a good time to inhabit trees. The Harrenhal Godswood scene continues. Arya climbed up in the kingdom of the leaves. She unsheathed, and for a time forgot them all. Sir Amory and the Mummers and her father's men alike, losing herself in the feel of rough wood beneath the soles of her feet, and the swish of sword through air. A broken branch became Joffrey. She struck at it until it fell away. The queen and Sir Illyn and Sir Merin and the hound were only leaves, but she killed them all as well, slashing them to wet green ribbons. When her arm grew weary, she sat with her legs over a high limb to catch her breath in the cool dark air, listening to the squeak of bats as they hunted through the leafy canopy she could see the bone-white branches of the heart tree. It looks just like the one in Winterfell from here. If only it had been. Then, when she climbed down, she would have been home again, and maybe find her father sitting under the weirwood, where he always sat. 
Arya is playing her squirrel role here to the fullest, up in the Kingdom of the Leaves, as it's referred to. She might be a squirrel, but she seems to be training to be a fighter inside the Kingdom of the Leaves. In the previous paragraph, we read that she danced among the upper branches, which makes her sound like one of the warriors of the children of the forest, who are called wood dancers. That's an interesting idea there at the end. We get a little bit of weirwood portal action, as Arya imagines climbing down into the Winterfell godswood and finding Ned, which kind of reminds us of Bran climbing into his weirwood throne and then seeing the godswood at Winterfell, beginning with the vision of Ned. But instead of finding Ned, Arya finds Jaqen, who we really need to talk about. Was that enough? Maybe she should pray aloud if she wanted the old gods to hear. Maybe she should pray longer. Sometimes her father had prayed a long time, she remembered. But the old gods had never helped him. Remembering that made her angry. You should have saved him. She scolded the tree. He prayed to you all the time. I don't care if you help me or not. I don't think you could, even if you wanted to. Gods are not mocked, girl. The voice startled her. She leapt to her feet and drew her wooden sword. Jack and Hagar stood so still in the darkness that he seemed one of the trees. A man comes to hear a name. One and two, and then comes three. A man would have done. The operative line here is the one with Jaqen seeming like one of the trees. That's significant because he has that long, straight hair, half red and half white, the coloring of a weirwood. He's a red and white tree man assassin, and we know what that means. Arya wonders to herself a couple of times during the encounter whether Jaqen might even be sent from the old gods as an answer to her prayer, and indeed, it kind of worked out that way. It seems clear that Jaqen is representing some sort of emanation of the tree. I tend to think of Jaqen as being similar to Ghost, the direwolf, and that Ghost is like a weirwood tree transformed into a deadly predator. In the next episode, we're going to see that the House of Black and White has a lot of weirwood symbolism. You may recall the weirwood doors and chairs for a start. And Jaqen comes from there, of course, being a faceless man. And so again, the idea is expressed that Jaqen, the red and white tree assassin, comes from the weirwood realm, which is also the realm of the dead. Again, we should think of the crone allowing the first raven into the world from the other side after peering through death's door, or of the weirwood goddess resurrecting dead greenseers. It's also worth noting that Jaqen's life was originally spared by Arya, who saved him from being trapped, in a burning cage, actually, at that abandoned holdfast near the God's Eye, where Sir Amory Lorch attacked Yorn and the recruits, and created that excellent burning tree sorcerer. We've looked at that scene in detail before, the first part at least, with Sir Amory's men described as burning shadows and men made of fire, and the flames licking at the belly of the night, and of course the burning tree robed in living fire. But we haven't looked inside the burning barn, or talked about the caged wagon that Jaqen, Rorge, and Biter are trapped in, so let's do that now. Have no doubt that the burning, caged wagon is a ground-zero bonfire symbol, with lines that remind us of the alchemical wedding, such as, The fire beat at her back with red-hot wings, or, She heard a sound like the roar of some monstrous beast, and, Rushing through the barn doors was like running into a furnace, and, Smoke was pouring out the open door like a writhing black snake, with that last quote being a great match for the twisted, black, king's-pyre tower of Harrenhal, which symbolizes the burning black cloud of smoke that's supposed to come from the Lightbringer bonfire. Now, when Arya threw the axe inside the cage to Rorge, he hacked at the wooden floor of the cage and, an instant later, came a crack as loud as thunder, 
and the bottom of the wagon came ripping loose in an explosion of splinters. That's another line we saw at the alchemical wedding with the cracking open of the second dragon's egg, which was also like thunder. Overall, the burning wagon and barn are a terrific example of something symbolizing both the burning, exploding moon egg and the burning tree which holds people prisoner, simultaneously. The thing I want to focus in on is that both the burning moon from which the dragons are born and the burning tree in which Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa are reborn can be seen as the mouth of hell, the doorway of death as we've been discussing. The weirwoods are called demon trees, and of course the dragons are always described in hellish fire and brimstone terminology, and we find hellish references here in the barn as well, such as when clouds of hot smoke and black dust came billowing up behind her, smelling of hell, or when Arya later wonders whether Rorge and Biter were demons that Jaken had called up from some hell. The point is that this door of death function that the weirwoods serve seems to occasionally let dead things back into the living world, whether it's the raven let in by the crone, or my green zombie theory, or the strange birth of a silent wolf named Ghost who looks like a weirwood. Jaken comes back through that door by being saved from the burning cage. He refers to Arya saving their lives as three lives having been snatched from a god. Thus we can see that Jaken is in many ways implied as someone coming out of the weirwood net, whether he's emerging from the house of death through the weirwood doors of the house of black and white, or being saved from a fiery cage, or appearing suddenly in the godswood, looking like one of the trees, after Arya prays to the old gods for help. Jaken's death is discussed and implied here in the godswood scene, as Arya leverages her ability to command him to kill himself, to force him to help her free the Northmen, with Jaken even taking out his knife in preparation to commit suicide. Then, a bit later, after they finish their grisly deed, he refers to the character of Jaken Hagar dying. A god has his due. And now a man must die. A strange smile touched the lips of Jack and Hagar. Die? She said, confused. What did he mean? But I unsaid the name. You don't need to die now. I do. My time is done. Jacken passed a hand down his face, from forehead to chin. And where it went, he changed. His cheeks grew fuller, his eyes closer, his nose hooked. A scar appeared on his right cheek, where no scar had been before. And when he shook his hand, his long straight hair, half red and half white, dissolved away to reveal a cap of tight black curls. If the burning tree is synonymous with the burning moon, as I suggest, then Jacob's transformation into the character of the alchemist that we see again in the prologue of A Feast for Crows, with his tight black curls, scarred face, and poisonous golden dragon coin, might be a match for the burning moon, producing fiery black moon meteors. The scar on the face especially, since the Azor Ahai myth speaks of a crack across the face of the moon. The scene in the godswood with Jaken and Arya is also the one where Arya sees the red weirwood leaves turn black in the moonlight, which we've quoted before, and that seems to be the same red to black, moon to moon meteor transformation symbolism. So here's the picture I'm seeing. Arya and Jaken kind of mirror each other as ghostly tree people, as killer emanations of the weirwood. Just as Jaken's death is implied here in multiple ways, so too is Arya's death. Besides all the ghost in Harrenhal talk, I notice that when Jaken surprises Arya in the godswood after her prayer to the weirwoods, Arya is spooked by the fact that he appeared suddenly, that he knows her name and knows that she's a Stark, and somehow managed to turn Weez's dog against him, and it says that, 
She backed away from him until she was pressed against the heart tree. That's trademark Weirwood's sacrifice position, of course, and this makes a ton of sense here with all the other clues about Arya being a ghostly Nissa Nissa reborn figure. In fact, this is probably one of the better clues about Nissa Nissa being a squirrel person sacrificed to a Weirwood tree. There's a cool moment in the immediate aftermath of the bloodshed down in the cell where the Northmen were kept that fits in with Arya as a sacrificed Nissa Nissa. Only one of the guards managed to get a blade out. Jacken danced away from his slash, drew his own sword, drove the man back into a corner with a flurry of blows, and killed him with a thrust to the heart. The Larathi brought the blade to Arya, still red with heart's blood, and wiped it clean on the front of her shift. A girl should be bloody too. This is her work. Indeed. This isn't quite Jaken stabbing her with a red sword, but it's pretty close, with the specific mention of the sword being red with heart's blood when Jaken touches Arya with it, helping to call to mind the story of Nissa Nissa and Lightbringer. At the same time, Jaken is also naming Arya as the mastermind who orchestrated the killing, and this speaks to the moon's role as the mother of dragon meteors, the weirwood as the mother of green zombies, or Mel as the mother of darkness and shadow babies. Returning to the burning barn scene for a moment, we find more symbolism indicating Arya as a dead Nissa Nissa that comes and goes from the Weirwood Net. There's a tunnel beneath the barn which leads out, and that's how Gendry, Arya, and the crying girl that tags along survive. Lama Green Hands and Hot Pie escape too, but they're kind of written out of the scene. The focus is really on Arya and Gendry, with Arya ordering Gendry to save the crying girl as Arya goes back for the axe to free Jake and Rorge and Biter from the burning wagon. What I think we're seeing with Arya and Gendry and the girl escaping the fire through the tunnel in the earth is the symbolic burial of Azor High, Nissa Nissa, and their child, and of course being buried beneath a burning tree symbol implies going into the Weirwood Net, being a green seer in a cave beneath the Weirwoods, and that sort of thing. Gendry's most certainly playing the fiery horned bull here, with his eyes shining with reflected fire through the slits of his bull's helm, and the helm itself reflecting the fire so brightly that his horns seemed to glow orange. So, a Nissa Nissa maiden and a fiery bull and a child are buried beneath the burning tree symbol, but it's also their salvation and their escape. Again, we see the burning weirwood or burning moon as a door or portal through which Azor High and Nissa Nissa can pass through, but only by means of dying. As a matter of fact, this chapter ends with Arya kissing the mud on the floor of the tunnel and crying, and the next Arya chapter opens with her already up in a tree by the shore of the God's Eye, where she has climbed to get a better look around. We don't have time to analyze that scene, but the point is made. Arya is a dead tree ghost, and so is Jaken. Like I said, they seem to mirror each other to some extent, even to the point of Arya wanting to be like him and eventually training to do so. What does this mean? Well, one interesting way to look at the relationship between Arya and Jaken is to notice that Arya is the one who looses and commands this weirwood-colored assassin, just as she saved him from the burning cage. Recall the line from Asha Greyjoy's Wayward Bride chapter about the tale of the children of the forest turning the trees to warriors. I've always thought of this as applying to the others, and it very well may, but what we might be seeing with Arya praying in the godswood and then receiving Jaken as a tree assassin for her to command with a whisper is a child of the forest character calling forth a tree warrior from the tree, from inside the weirwood net. This could work very well as a depiction of the ghost of a child of the forest Nissa Nissa performing a weirwood resurrection, 
making a green zombie, in other words. This resurrected tree warrior would be, in one sense, the child of Nissanissa, and Jaken being at Arya's command and being Arya's instrument of revenge reminds me of one of Bran's weirwood visions where we saw a woman heavy with child emerged naked and dripping from the black pool, knelt before the tree, and begged the old gods for a son who would avenge her. In her Nissanissa role, Arya seems to represent the pregnant woman asking the old gods for a vengeful child, just as Arya was for a while powerless to enact her own revenge. But of course, Arya more often plays the role of that vengeful child, Nissanissa reborn. I think that's kind of what's happening in these Harrenhal scenes. Arya is showing us both sides of the Nissanissa coin, both the before and after. Okay, wave goodbye to Jaqen, as it's time for the next Harrenhal chapter, which takes place after Jaqen departs. We'll go ahead and make a section break here. Hell hath no fury like a woman with a stick sword. This section is sponsored by the Patreon support of longtime acolyte of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Kathleen the Ruthless, captain of the Ironborn ship Night Terror, and two of our new acolytes, Mira of House Gardener, keeper of the Glass Gardens and bearer of the Sea Dragon's Torch, and she who is known only as the Pale Moon. The second tree-climbing scene at Harrenhal is really a whole chapter that follows a distinct rhythm. Arya in the Lord's Chambers at Kingspire Tower with some kind of burning book or scroll, and then over to the Godswood, then back to Kingspire for more burning of parchment, and then back to the Godswood. Last time I mentioned Ravenous Reader's Catch about libraries being equivalent to Weirwoods, particularly burning libraries like the one at Winterfell, and that's what's going on here at Kingspire Tower, which is, of course, already known to us as a burning tree symbol in its own right. In fact, think of the burning paper that we're going to see as the burning tree, and the twisted black tower as the column of dark smoke rising from it. The idea behind the back-and-forth sequence is that Arya goes through the burning tree like a doorway, and then finds herself symbolically inside the weirwood net when she goes to the godswood, which is basically the same sequence that we see with Arya going through the burning barn, only to end up in a tree the next time we see her. This chapter takes place after Roos Bolton has taken over Harrenhal, following Arya's Weasel Soup Rebellion. It's actually her last chapter there, as this is the one that ends with her escaping with Gendry and Hot Pie. The first scene we'll quote from is Arya in Roos's chambers, after everyone else has left and she's charged with refreshing the room and burning the letter that Roos received from his wife, Walda. The Lord and Maester swept from the room, giving her not so much as a backward glance. When they were gone, Arya took the letter and carried it to the hearth, stirring the logs with a poker to wake the flames anew. She watched the parchment twist, blacken, and flare up. If the Lannisters hurt Bran and Rickon, Rob will kill them every one. He'll never bend the knee. Never, never, never. He's not afraid of any of them. Curls of ash floated up the chimney. Arya squatted beside the fire, watching them rise through a veil of hot tears. If Winterfell is truly gone, is this my home now? Am I still Arya, or only Nan the Serving Girl, forever and forever and forever? We have Arya waking the flames in the hearth anew, then the rising ash column coming from the burning parchment. What really clinches it is the reference to watching the rising curls of ash through a veil of hot tears. 
Not only are the hot tears implying tears of fire, like our fire-transformed weirwood moon maidens, the phrase veil of tears is specifically used to refer to the barrier between life and death, in the real world and in a song of ice and fire. You might remember the burning of the seven scene on Dragonstone, where Davos saw the stone dragons and gargoyles through a veil of tears, appearing to wake and rise, as Mel and Stannis did their little Lightbringer reenactment. Arya is gazing into the rising ash and seeing through to the other side, in other words, much like Stannis and Melisandre both did in their fire visions, which contain ash tree symbolism. Above all, it symbolizes Arya peering through the curtain that separates life and death, just like the crone, and she does so while wondering if the part of her who is Arya Stark might be gone, leaving her only as Nan. That's death symbolism for her Arya identity, and the reference to Nan simply invokes the crone again. Because, I mean, who's more like the crone than old Nan? Old Nan is a decrepit but wise old woman, fond of ghost stories. She's playing into the crone archetype if anyone is. In other words, the burning tree symbol of the parchment has transformed Arya into a dead Nissa Nissa, who is the same as the crone. She's now Nan. Consider also that the burning paper is a letter from Roos's wife. It's a message from his wife, the words of his wife, turned into burning paper. This is very similar to the windy speech of the Weirwoods being the voice of Nissa Nissa. This idea is actually attached to Old Nan, too. When Bran hears the Boltons were responsible for the sack of Winterfell and that Old Nan might be dead, Mira tells him, Remember Old Nan's stories, Bran. Remember the way she told them, the sound of her voice. So long as you do that, part of her will always be alive in you. Like Jenny, who is now only a song, or like the willow tree whispering please in the voice of the dead woman, old Nan is now only a memory and a voice. Anyway, now that Arya is symbolically dead and transformed into the crone, it's time to head to the godswood for some needlework. She slashed at birch leaves till the splintery point of the broken broomstick was green and sticky. Sir Gregor, she breathed. Dunson, Polliver, Wrath the Sweetling. She spun and leapt and balanced on the balls of her feet, darting this way and that, knocking pine cones flying. The tickler, she called out one time. The hound, the next. Sir Ellen, Sir Marin, Queen Circe. The bowl of an oak loomed before her, and she lunged to drive her point through it, grunting, Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey! Her arms and legs were dappled by sunlight and the shadows of leaves, a sheen of sweat covered her skin by the time she paused. The heel of her right foot was bloody, where she'd skinned it. So she stood one-legged before the heart tree and raised her sword in salute. Valar Morghulis, she told the old gods of the north. She liked how the words sounded when she said them. To begin with, this is just a really cool example of Arya climbing the tree like a squirrel, but also learning to fight and kill. She recites a Valerian prayer to the old gods which again speaks of the combination of fire magic and green seer magic, which permeates all things Azor High. The message is right, too. All men must die, as the old gods are the spirits of dead people and dead singers. Oh, and look, Arya's skin is dappled by sunlight and the shadow of leaves, which of course further implies her as having dappled skin like a child of the forest. Just as with other weirwood maidens that get the dappled skin description, it comes at a symbolically significant time, as Arya is up in the Kingdom of the Leaves, acting like a squirrel child. One final note on her stick-sword fury. She names the bowl of an oak Joffrey three times, as if he was a member of the Brady Bunch or something. Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey. 
Anyways, naming the bowl of an oak Joffrey and then trying to kill it with a stick sword essentially creates a solar oak king symbol for Arya to kill inside the Weirwood net. And that's the familiar theme of Nissa Nissa lunar revenge against the sun. Next, Arya is back to Roose Bolton's chambers after he returns from hunting wolves. And it seems we basically repeat the same sequence, starting over with a burning paper symbol in the King's Pyre Tower. This time, Roose is reading a mysterious book when Arya enters. Bolton turned a few more pages with his finger, then closed the book and placed it carefully in the fire. He watched the flames consume it, pale eyes shining with reflected light. The old dry leather went up with a whoosh, and the yellow pages stirred as they burned, as if some ghost were reading them. I will have no further need of you tonight, he said, never looking at her. As if some ghost were reading them. That's exactly the idea behind the Weirwood as a library. It's a library whose knowledge is kept by the dead spirits of the Greenseers. Accessing this knowledge is akin to being burned by the fire of the gods. Also, Weirwood Stigmata alert. During the first burning paper fire scene in this chamber, Arya had the hot tears, and this time, Roose Bolton threatens to have her tongue torn out for her repeated questions, though I didn't quote it because we're kind of running out of time. You'll just have to take my word for it. Then it's back to the godswood, but not before a clever bit of death symbolism for Arya on the way, because that's the sequence. This is the scene where she runs into young Elmar Frey, teary-eyed and upset after learning that his arranged marriage to a princess is now off for some reason. Unbeknownst to either of them, Arya is that princess, promised to Elmar by Rob Stark when the Starks pass through the twins on their way south in A Game of Thrones. What's funny is that during their conversation, Arya mentions that her brothers may be dead, but Elmar tells Arya that no one cares about her potentially dead brothers because he thinks she's just some serving girl. Arya replies by saying, I hope your princess dies. But again, Arya is that princess. A dead girl, as Sirio calls her, or I guess we could call Arya Princess Dead Girl, or perhaps even Princess Dead Squirrel. And of course, I can't claim credit for that catch. That's just one that's been floating around on the forums for a long time. I'm not sure who the original credit goes to, but it seemed to fit in here, so there you go. So once again, the sequence is death symbolism and then into the godswood, and that's what happens again. In the godswood, she found her broomstick sword where she had left it and carried it to the heart tree. There she knelt. Red leaves rustled. Red eyes appeared inside her. The eyes of the gods. Tell me what to do, you gods, she prayed. For a long moment, there was no sound but the wind and the water and the creak of leaf and limb. And then, far, far off, beyond the godswood and the haunted towers and the immense stone walls of Harrenhal, from somewhere out in the world, came a long, lonely howl of a wolf. Goose prickles rose on Arya's skin, and for an instant, she felt dizzy, then so faintly, it seemed as if she'd heard her father's voice. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, he said. But there is no pack, she whispered to the weirwood. Bran and Rickon were dead. The Lannisters had Sansa. John had gone to the wall. I'm not even me now, I'm Nan. You are Arya of Winterfell, daughter of the North. You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. The wolf blood. Arya remembered now. I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. She took a deep breath, then lifted the broomstick in both hands 
and brought it down across her knee. It broke with a loud crack, and she threw the pieces aside. I am a direwolf, and done with wooden teeth. This is twice now that we've seen Arya call herself Nan, and she's even spelling it out as a transformation. I'm not even me now. I'm Nan. Here's a bit of old Nan trivia, which unites her with the burning ash tree shy maiden thing, just because I like you. Old Nan is the mother or grandmother of Hodor, and the likely theory is that Hodor got his super-tall genetics from Sir Duncan the Tall, who may have had a tryst with Old Nan. That may be what Bran sees in his weirwood vision, the one that comes right after seeing the pregnant woman asking for a son to avenge her. Then there came a brown-haired girl, slender as a spear, who stood on the tips of her toes to kiss the lips of a young knight as tall as Hodor. Now recall the scene with Asha the Wildling in the Winterfell crypts after the burning of Winterfell. A spark flew, caught. Asha blew softly. A long pale flame awoke, stretching upward like a girl on her toes. Asha's face floated above it. I've always noted the similar language there, but never understood it until now. Old Nan is the crone, and the crone is like a later stage of the Shy Maiden's life arc. Or we might say that the crone and the Shy Maiden are like two different phases in the life and times of Nissa Nissa. As for Arya breaking her stick sword in the godswood, she is indeed done with wooden swords, as this is the chapter which ends with her slitting a guard's throat to escape from Harrenhal after stopping by the forge to recruit Gendry and the kitchens to recruit Hot Pie. There are two bits that I want to pull from the escape. She could see the gleam of steel under the fur, and she did not know if she was strong enough to drive the point of the dagger through chainmail. His throat. It must be his throat. But he's too tall. I'll never reach it. For a moment, she did not know what to say. For a moment, she was a little girl again, and scared, and the rain on her face felt like tears. The thing to note here is the rain like tears. Hold that thought, and now listen to the next bit, after Arya drops the iron coin and tricks the guard into stooping over for it. Cursing her softly, the man went to a knee to grope for the coin in the dirt, and there was his neck right in front of her. Arya slid her dagger out and drew it across his throat, as smooth as summer silk. His blood covered her hands in a hot gush, and he tried to shout, but there was blood in his mouth as well. Falar Morghulis, she whispered as he died. When he stopped moving, she picked up the coin. Outside the walls of Harrenhal, a wolf howled long and loud. She lifted the bar, set it aside, and pulled open the heavy oak door. By the time Hot Pie and Gendry came up with the horses, the rain was falling hard. You killed him, Hot Pie gasped. What did you think I would do? Her fingers were sticky with blood, and the smell was making her mare skittish. It's no matter, she thought, swinging up into the saddle. The rain will wash them clean again. This scene pretty much feels like deja vu at this point. Another hapless victim given a red smile by a weirwood goddess. He gets the throat-cutting red smile and the blood in the mouth, both, while Arya has blood gushing all over her hands, making her hands like weirwood leaves and symbolizing her red-handed guilt. But not to worry, those tears from above will wash her red hands clean again. It's almost as if the gods are giving Arya a pass here, a license to kill. She's the 007 of the old gods, essentially, their chosen instrument. And that raises another point. What does it say to us that the weirwoods are red-handed? 
Does this indicate their guilt on some level? Guilty of sending out ghostly killers as emanations from the weirwood? Or perhaps, if the face on the tree is the face of the one trapped inside, as I suggested in In a Grove of Ash, the red hand leaves indicate his guilt, his being Azor Ahai, I would assume. In any case, that brings us nearly to the end of our episode. But before we go, think back a couple of quotes to the scene where Arya prays to the Weirwood and hears her father's voice telling her that she promised to be strong like Rob and how Arya has the wolf blood. In A Game of Thrones, while Ned is still alive, he commented on Arya's wolf blood, and in doing so, compared her to another Weirwood maiden who, coincidentally, also appeared at Harrenhal. Her father sighed. Ah, Arya, you have a wildness in your child. The wolf blood, my father used to call it. Lyanna had a touch of it, and my brother Brandon, more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard sadness in his voice. He did not often speak of his father, or of the brother and sister who had died before she was born. Lyanna might have carried a sword, if my lord father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. Ah, that's right. Lyanna. Lyanna, whose Nissa Nissa symbolism is well established at the Tower of Joy, and whose statue seemed to weep blood in one of Ned's dreams. The main reason I bring her up, however, is because she was almost certainly the Knight of the Laughing Tree at the tourney of Harrenhal, in what is called the Year of the False Spring. The story of the Knight of the Laughing Tree is told by Mira and Jojen to Bran in A Storm of Swords, and concerns the events of the tourney of Harrenhal involving Ned, Brandon, Benjen, Lyanna, Robert, Rhaegar, Mad King Ares, Arthur Dane, Ashara Dane, and Halland Reed. As Bran and Mira and Jojen and Hodor are traveling from Winterfell to the Wall in A Storm of Swords, Bran asks for a story about knights. Jojen responds that they don't have knights in the Cranogs, save for a few dead ones under the water. But then Mira amends as follows. There was one night, said Mira, in the year of the false spring, the night of the laughing tree, they called him. He might have been a Cranog man, that one. Or not. Jojen's face was dappled with green shadows. Prince Bran has heard that tale a hundred times, I'm sure. I wanted to point this out to you so you can see another clearly intentional use of the dappled description. I mean, it's pretty much conventional wisdom at this point, I think, that the Cranog men have a little bit of children of the forest blood in their ancestry. In fact, I would say if it wasn't obvious in the books, the main series that is, the world of ice and fire spells it out pretty clearly. Compare this to Arya being dappled in sunlight and shadow. Anyway, the plot begins with three rude squires who mistreat scrawny young Howland Reed, who is the Cranog man in this story. Lyanna comes to the rescue, and this is Mira narrating. They shoved him down every time he tried to rise, and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a roar. That's my father's man you're kicking, howled the she-wolf. A wolf on four legs or two? Two, said Mira. The she-wolf laid into the squires with a tourney sword, scattering them all. Note the stick sword, Wrath. Remind you of anyone? Arya made the stick whistle as she laid the wood across his donkey's hindquarters. The animal hawed and bucked, dumping hot pie on the ground. She vaulted off her own donkey and poked him in the gut as he tried to get up, and he sat back down with a grunt. Then she whacked him across the face, and his nose made a crack like a branch breaking. Blood dribbled from his nostrils, 
When Hot Pie began to wail, Arya whirled toward Lummy Greenhands, who was sitting on his donkey open-mouthed. You want some sword too? she yelled. But he didn't. He raised dyed green hands in front of his face and squealed at her to get away. Sorry, I just couldn't resist letting Mr. Martin Lewis read that one. It's just too hilarious. And yes, that's a fellow with green hands hanging out with Arya. I couldn't find too much going on with Lamy Green Hands beyond the simple fact that he's killed with a spear thrust to the throat while sitting against an oak tree, which obviously speaks of sacrificing a green-handed Garth type before an oak tree by giving him a red smile. But let's get back to the Night of the Laughing Tree story. We don't have time for Lamy Green Hands. We left off with Lyanna whooping ass with her stick sword. She brings Howland back to Camp Stark, where Brandon, Ned, and Benjen are hanging out and telling wolf stories, I guess. There's a dance that night. The Quiet Wolf and the Shy Wolf and Shardane and Rhaegar played sad music and made Lyanna weep, etc., etc. But like Bran, what we're interested in is the jousting. Mira picks up the tale, telling Bran that the three knights, whom the three bully squires served, won their initial jousts. As it happened, the end of the first day saw the Porcupine Knight win a place among the champions, and on the morning of the second day, the Pitchfork Knight and the Knight of the Two Towers were victorious as well. But late on the afternoon of that second day, as the shadows grew long, a Mystery Knight appeared in the lists. After Bran guesses that the Mystery Knight was young Howland, Mira kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, No one knew, said Mira. But the Mystery Knight was short of stature and clad in ill-fitting armor made up of bits and pieces. The device upon his shield was a heart tree of the old gods, a white weirwood with a laughing red face. Maybe he came from the Isle of Faces, said Bran. Was he green? In old Nan's stories, the Guardians had dark green skin and leaves instead of hair. Sometimes they had antlers too. But Bran didn't see how the Mystery Knight could have worn a helm if he had antlers. I bet the old god sent him. Bran is correct. Wearing a helmet would be pretty difficult if you have antlers growing from your head. I mean, maybe you could have a multi-piece thing that sort of snaps down around the ant. Anyway, of course, the symbolism here is what we're looking at, and the suggestion is that the Knight of the Laughing Tree might be a green man. I think we're certainly led to imagine that the green men, these guardians, as Bran thinks of them, are some sort of weirwood-like beings tied to the weirwoods, so the comparison makes a lot of sense, I would say. And when you consider the weirwood face device on the Mystery Knight's shield, it seems obvious that, symbolically, we are dealing with yet another version of the weirwood tree emanation figure, very like Jaken or Ghost or many of our Nissa Nissa Reborn figures. Notice Bran saying, I bet the old god sent him. That is exactly what Arya thinks about Jaken. As a matter of fact, earlier in the story, Mira tells us that the Cranog Man had spent the winter prior to the tourney on the Isle of Faces, after having successfully sought out the Green Men there, and also that the night before the Night of the Laughing Tree appears, the Cranog Man had knelt at the lake shore of the God's Eye and prayed to the Old Gods. Again, this is very like Arya praying to the Old Gods and then having Jaken appear, looking like one of the trees. As we've seen today, the Weirwood Emanation Warriors seem to be reborn or resurrected figures, and this is implied when we read that the Knight of the Laughing Tree appeared as the shadows grew long, suggesting that this Weirwood Knight is a tree shadow. And when Mira finishes her story, it says that the day was growing old by then, and long shadows were creeping down the mountainsides to send black fingers through the pines, which seems to me like George re-emphasizing the tree shadow motif. 
There's an even stronger clue about the Knight of the Laughing Tree symbolizing a dead tree spirit when our beloved tree knight pulls a vanishing act at the end. As we get the line, All they ever found was his painted shield hanging abandoned in a tree. This is what I would call stunningly clear Odin symbolism. The weirwood trees, a tree based on Yggdrasil, and the weirwood face shield is hanging on the tree like Odin hung on Yggdrasil. It also kind of reminds me of Cinderella, where the clock struck midnight and then the magic was over, so the weirwood knight went back into the weirwood net. And a similar thing happened when Jaken changes his identity after relieving himself of the debt that he and Arya owed to the gods. Alas, the clock has struck midnight for us as well, as I have successfully managed to cut a three-hour podcast in half and then turn the first half into a nearly three-hour podcast in its own right. Snatching extemporaneousness from the jaws of brevity, I call that. We will continue the tale of Nissa Nissa, the ghostly weirwood dryad, in our next chapter of the Weirwood Goddess series, entitled Catwoman. And look out for our first video cast of LML TV on our YouTube channel this month. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you next time.